In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, O God, glory to thee, heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things. O Treasure of every good and bestower of life, come and dwell in us, and cleanse from every stain, and save our souls, O Good One. With God's help, we have now come to part two of the life of St. Nectarius. We also had a great blessing today to be able to participate in the Paraklesis, or in Slavonic, uh, Meleben, the, the whole canon, in English. So all of you were able to listen to the words. And when we participate in the services of the church, we become closer to God and closer to the saints, the mother of God, the angels. There is a uh, misunderstanding, or in some cases distortion, uh, that when someone comes to the Christian faith, when someone comes to the to Orthodox Church, it means that everything should go well, that everything should be smooth, there should be no problems, no temptations, uh, everything should be smooth sailing. But yet, when we heard the talk last month, we heard the first part of St. Nectarius's life, which was from the time he was born to the time that he became bishop, we heard that he suffered continually. And someone could ask, or people could ask, why? Why does God allow? If he's such a, this is a great saint, he was leading a spiritual life, he was doing the commandments of Christ, why would God allow him to suffer? For example, for the first years, he actually lived under the Turks. We went through that last time. And how difficult it was to live under the Turks, because the, the way he was born in Silivria was under... Uh, the uh, Ottoman Empire. So therefore, the Greeks, including himself, would have suffered under them, and we went through that last talk. Then we had the incident regarding the boat to Constantinople, how he couldn't, he had no money to go on the boat, and then when he finally was allowed to go on, and then they were asking for tickets, and he cried, etc., so he was quite, he, he suffered quite a lot there. Then when he arrived at Constantinople, uh, where he had a letter of a friend of the family to give him a job in his, in his shop, it turned out that that person had gone. So that he had nowhere to stay, he had no food, no job, he, he knew no one. So he suffered quite a lot from that. Finally he got a job with a cruel boss 
and that boss used to even hit him, bash him, etc., as we heard. And one would say, look how much he suffered even there. And he had no one to go to. Then his clothes started to uh, uh, wear, wear out. His shoes, he was freezing, and his boss would not give him any extra money. He only had enough to be able to live on the property of the shop, but there was no much money left over for him to take care of himself. And after that, we read, we heard that he went to um, the Patriarchate of Alexandria in Egypt, where he was made, he was made a deacon in Hughes, but he, then he was made a priest and a metropolitan in Egypt. And then, because of jealousy and envy, he was slandered. Uh, some people that were jealous of him slandered him to the uh, patriarch, and the patriarch believed it and dismissed him of his duties. And then later on, shortly after that, a few months later, the patriarch sent him another letter saying to him, I want you to leave Egypt, and he left. So this saint, this holy person, who was doing God's will and doing the, the, his, the, the commandments and serving the people and the people loved him and yet God allowed affliction on affliction on affliction, suffering, 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 suffering. He was, he was um, one could say, he was like he was stabbed continually. St. Nectarius himself says, said, he said to someone, it is true that the virtuous man endures temptations and humiliations in the world, but he rejoices deep within his heart because his conscience is at peace. The world hates and despises virtuous men, yet it envies them, as our ancestors used to say, even the enemy admires virtue. So the saint here is saying that when we are leading a life in Christ, the world will hate us. This does not apply just for the saints. This applies for every single person who makes a decision that they're going to lead a life according to Christ's commandments. Automatically, that opens them up to be hated by those who are far away from Christ. And he even says here that the enemy, these people who hate those who lead a Christian life, deep down are jealous of them as well. Because it says he, even the enemy admires virtue. The, the pagan women back in the first centuries were jealous of the Christian women. Because the Christian women didn't have to decorate themselves with makeup. They didn't have to wear these beautiful clothes to look attractive. The Christian women wore simple clothes and yet they were more uh, beautiful, they were more radiant than the pagan women. So the pagan women were jealous. But in general, people are jealous because a Christian struggles and with God's help, gains victory over his passions, while the world today, uh, even though they say we don't want Christ, we don't want religion, we don't want the church, we don't want priests, we don't want 
saints. We don't want anything because we want to be free. And yet we can see their freedom in that alcoholism skyrocketing up. Problems with drugs. Even problems with um, uh, uh, sex. There's a sex addictions now, pornography, etc. Then there's problems with food where people, they say, I can't stop certain foods or they can't stop eating. And then they've got um, always with these weight losses and weight losses and programs and you see it continually. Why? Because they can't eat properly. And then we have the smoking, addiction to smoking. And now I just heard recently that they say that... uh, uh, the greatest addiction, even above smoking and alcohol, is Twitter and Facebook, that people are more addicted to that. And that's uh, some studies done in America there. So addiction everywhere. People say, I can't stop. So they have freedom in their minds. They think they've got freedom, but in reality, they are slaves. And yet we hear that Christians also can have passions and have problems. However, they tend to, if they're humble and ask God for help, overcome a lot of those things. So the enemy admires or is jealous of those who are virtuous. Like another addiction is anger. So they've got all these programs, these road rage, um, for road rages and for all these people that have got these anger problems. So there's another addiction that people say, I can't stop it. Stop being angry. Then we have the other thing of revenge, which the person burns up, is consumed by revenge and hate. It just, the list goes on. Of where does that mean Christians haven't got hate? Yes, they 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 are overcome by hate many times. But the the difference is they know it's wrong, and they pray and ask God to take it away from them, and they repent. While the others don't think it's bad. They go, "What's wrong with that? Well, if they've done that to me, then I'm going to do that to them, and I'm going to hate them, and etc. etc." And you see them suffering and suffering and suffering, being consumed by these uh, passions. Another addiction that these poor people are consumed with is their vainglory, that they want to be noticed, go on these shows, on television, whether it's game shows or reality shows or weight loss shows or singing shows or dancing shows. People all want to go and be uh, in the limelight there for people to notice them, and that's what Facebook's about and Twitter's about, etc. So all this is to do with vainglory, which is, which is a, ser- a serious passion which Christians are aware of. They know that vainglory, meaning this thing to show off, is detrimental to our spiritual life. But yet, those poor people can't stop that either. And as I said last time, they even go to the extent of putting on their Facebook pictures of themselves and their, and their um, program of what they're doing so that the world can see what they're doing. And that is... To me, that's psychological. Poor people are psychologically disturbed. Then we have the other addiction with pets. 
People have so much love for their pets and spend so much money for their pets, more than what they care for their own, um, for, for human beings. Anyway, let's get off that so we won't get sick. So, St. Nectarius wrote this. He says, I believe about himself, I obtain great benefit from trials. Trials are a sure witness of God's love and compassion for man. He's saying, when I go through trials, when I suffer, I do that, uh, that happens to me because God loves me. And wherefore, also, he must give thanks in everything. So the person who's suffering must thank God that God has, has looked down on him and, and out of his love has sent him sufferings. A man's imperfection calls for trials to perfect him. That's the philosophy of the saints. Because we are imperfect, because we are full of passions and, 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 and um, a lot of evil, etc., then God sends us these trials, sufferings, whether it's people hating us or whether it's from demons or whether it's mental illness or whether it's uh, people against us. It could be sicknesses, a lot of things. Whatever trials are sent, God, that means that God is expressing his love towards the person. See, this sounds illogical to today's world because today's world is everything to do with not, not suffering at all. But you can't escape from suffering and hence why people have to take drugs or drink alcohol because they're suffering. Something inside of them is making them suffer. It could be trauma from when they were young. That's a, that's a, that does put, that's a very difficult thing. But also, there could be other, many other reasons. Um, from, could be their own sins or whatever. But the point is, there's suffering going on within. And today's philosophy is no one suffers. We must not suffer. Today we live in the 21st century, which means there's no suffering. So we either get... Um, uh, there's two ways of getting drugs. There's two types of pushers. There's the illegal pushers and then there's the legal pushers, the psychiatrists, etc., who a lot of the times push medication. Some people need it, yes, but 95% of those people don't need it. They, there's other problems, of other issues there. But they haven't got time for that. They just said, let's, let's um, give them pills so that we can get our commission from the, from the um, pharmaceutical companies. St John of Cronstein also says something about this when he says, when we are greatly afflicted or very ill, and above all when we are subjected to the injustices of men, like St Nectarius in other words, the injustice of men, it is very hard to say from the heart, thy will be done. Afflictions cleanse the soul, they bring down grace, they soften the hard heart. So I'll go through that again. St John of Cronstein says that when we are afflicted, or very ill, but above all, he actually says this, above all, when we are subjected to the injustice of men, when people treat us wrongly, when it's no fault of our own. In, in those cases, it's very hard to say from the heart, God, thy will be done. So we have to force ourselves to do that because of our fallen nature we don't want to suffer our fallen nature we say i don't want to suffer christ himself shown his human nature in the garden if you remember just before he was crucified he prayed and said take this cup away from me 
And then he says, but not my will be done, your will be done. And then St. John of Cronstein says, afflictions cleanse the soul. In other words, when we suffer, it cleanses our filthy souls. They bring down grace. Afflictions bring grace into us. They soften the heart because all of us, when we want to believe, we have hard hearts. I remember once I asked a question years ago, who thinks they've got love? And this person put their hand up. And um, she was a bit embarrassed because no one else put their hand up. Doesn't mean that some of you don't believe that you've got love. But anyway, she put her hand up. Later on, after dealing with her over about a year or so, she would say to me, I can't believe how much hate I've got in me. I can't believe how hard my heart is. I said, when people come closer to Christ, when a person, the way we know that we're close to God, one of the first signs, if you remember from past talks, is when we begin to see our sins and feel them. When we feel our sins. When we, begin to have, when we begin to have that experience, then we say, God has come near to us. And when we don't, when we're blind as bats, then God is far away from us. You can always tell a person, when a person, when you say to them, oh, you know, you've got that particular fault, or that problem. no, I haven't, no, I haven't, no, I haven't, continually. That person is far away from God. Person closer to God, when you say, oh, I've noticed that you're greedy. Person closer to God, goes, yes, I know I am, and I'm dealing, I'm trying to deal with that, I'm trying to do, I'm trying to, you know, get over that passion, etc. See? So Judas, someone might say, but he had self-knowledge, he saw himself. But when I say to see our sins, it means to see our sins. And ask God's forgiveness, not to fall into despair like Judas did. See, St. Peter saw his sin. He denied Christ three times. But he cried and he bowed his head and asked forgiveness and received forgiveness from God. And he was reconciled and Christ accepted him back. But in Judas's case, as we've said before, he didn't, he repented that means he's even an atheist can say, I regret doing that. I wish I didn't do that. That's wrong what I did. But that's not enough because for a Christian, we go a step further, which is then after we realise what we've done, then we come to God, we come to the church, we come to Christ and bow down and say, forgive me, I've sinned. And then we confess, etc., and receive uh, God's forgiveness. That's the difference. There was something else, but I forgot now. Anyway, when I am um, Elder Ephraim of Arizona of the monastery in his red book that we've got at the Beck Councils of the Holy Mountain, he writes in there on afflictions. When I, when I hear or see that someone lives without afflictions and prospers according to all his desires. In other words, a person that has no sufferings and he just does his own life and, 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 and prospers, whatever. I consider this to be 
abandonment from God, that God has abandoned that person. Remember that woman that we read in the Lives of Saints, that she was crying one day and crying, and then a, one, a, some bishop or priest went past and says, why are you crying? God has abandoned me. Why has God abandoned you? It's because for a time now, I've had no afflictions, no temptations, not even any of my animals have died, nothing, my children are always well. God has abandoned me. Now, some of you could say, this to me sounds illogical. That's okay, you're free to do what you want. That's why we say, that's why Christ says, whoever wants to follow me, let him pick up his cross. He says it clearly. If you want to follow me, if you decide, if it's your will to follow me, pick up your cross. In other words, pick up your suffering that you're going to go through and follow me. So that's why I would say, if someone says to me, oh, I don't like that, I don't believe in that, I say, it's fair enough, that's your business. We don't force people, that's up to the person. If Christ gave freedom to people to lead her, to follow him or not, the priest has to do the same. Leave the person, don't keep on chasing them. Now, if uh, Father Ephraim goes on, he says, if there were no temptations, oh, this is one of my, this is a, one, a wonderful um, uh, a, a line if there were no temptations in our life pride and other passions would turn would have turned us into other lucifers in other words if we did not have sufferings then the pride in us would be so great because suffering humbles us the pride in us would be so great, he said, that would become like devils. Like it says here, he, we, we would have turned into other Lucifers. Be, but, uh, but, our good God, but our good Father, God, allows afflictions to come upon us so that we may be guarded by humility. Afflictions bring us humility. Even St. Paul this, this, this great preacher, the mouth of Christ, as the church calls him, he actually was given a temptation and he, and he called it a messenger of Satan, a thorn in the flesh. Now, the Holy Fathers don't, I think, from what I've read, that they don't know what it was. Some say it was a sickness, a physical sickness. Some say it was something demonic or whatever, we don't know exactly what it is, but he said that he prayed three times for God to take away that affliction because he felt that that suffering that he was going through was stopping him of preaching the word of God. As we noticed in St. Nectarius, we'll notice today, there was obstructions all the time. And Christ said to him, that in my weakness, sorry, in your weakness, you are made strong. That by being weak, you become stronger. How can the world understand that today? Only an Orthodox Christian who's practicing a spiritual life would understand that when we are weak, then we are strong. But the world says you have to be strong. You have to have self-esteem. You have to have confidence. You have to be. Uh, sure of yourself, etc., etc., while the church says that when we are weak, we are strong, not that we, uh, 
that we're pathetically, um, that people think that, oh, it means that you have to be, like we have great saints like St. John, St. George, whose, whose memory we have in, this, in whose church this is. He was a great general. We have great kings. We have great hierarchs who, yes, they had their weaknesses through sufferings, through the demonic temptations, through slanders, etc. But within those weaknesses, they found strength in God because, we, because afflictions bring grace. And when we have grace, then we become strong. So Christ says to St. Paul, your suffering, that gives you humility. And where you have humility, that's when I can come into a person. God can only come into a person's heart when the person has humility. When there's no humility, then God cannot come in to that person's heart. And Father Ephraim goes on, Afflictions come in order to bring us closer to God, for afflictions grieve and oppress the heart, softening and humbling it. Our hearts are softened and humbled when we suffer. Even last time I read from the epistle of St. Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you want to live according to Christ's commandments, you will suffer persecution. And you will be, and then Christ himself says, and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. What's for my name's sake mean? Because you follow Christ. But he who endures to the end will be saved. So when we are suffering, we have to endure because we're going to have thoughts to give up. Because we say, oh, it's too much, too much. But when we're weak, then we're strong. So when we're weak, when we feel we can't take it, we ask God to give us a strength, and then God gives us strength and we become strong. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Christ says. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you. Revile means talk bad about you, put you down, etc., and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake, falsely. Not if we've done something wrong and then someone puts us down, we go, oh, I'm being persecuted. So if you uh, stole someone's something from someone and that person hates you, then that's not where you get the reward. It's when you've done nothing wrong. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And if the world, Christ says another in John, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Christ says, don't worry if the world hates you because it hated me, meaning himself, before it hated you. Someone's making noises. If you're of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And people might get confused. What does it mean by um, because you are not of the world? Does that mean we don't live in the world? Does that mean we lock ourselves up in our house? Does that mean we go out into a cave and live? No, what it means is that we live in the world. Because if you look at Christianity for the last 2,000 years, they lived in the world except for some exceptional saints that went out to the desert. In general, the Christians lived in the world. So what does it mean, but you are, it says, but I chose you out of the world, means that we're not of the same spirit of the world. 
In other words, Christians don't go according to what the world does. The world aborts children. Christians don't abort children. The world believes what's wrong with fornication, meaning sex before marriage. But the Christian, but, but the Christian faith says you don't do that, etc., etc. The world is contrary to the gospel's teachings, to the teachings of the gospel. And the last quote, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. So we'll just repeat that. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. In the Old Testament, the Jews were told that you hate your enemy. All of a sudden, Christ comes along and gives us a new teaching, a teaching according to love. And he says, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. We will remember that as we listen now to the life of St. Nectarius' second part. But before we start the life, I want to say that sometimes there are distortions in the lives, of, like I said before. Here's a life of St. Nectarius that I found. It said, He endured these latter trials with the patience of Christ, meekly and without complaint. And I often read this in the lives of saints when it's to do a short life of St. Nectarius. It says, He suffered slanders and persecutions, etc., and he did not complain. But last month we heard that when he was slandered, when he lost his positions, when he was thrown out of Egypt, he was wounded that he suffered tremendously. And he found it difficult at times to accept what happened to him and we're going to see more in this life. So, as we mentioned in the last talk, because of Metropolitan Nectarius's popularity, the people of Alexander began to demand an explanation for his dismissal from the elderly patriarch, Sophronius, who was approaching around 90 years, age, 90 years of age at that time. The Holy One decided to leave for Greece secretly in order to avoid a disturbance in the Church of Alexandria. If he stayed there, the people would have gone against the patriarch. They would have demanded for him to, they would have demanded that he step down. They would have demanded that the Metropolitan Nectaris be given the position of patriarch, etc., etc. So that's why the patriarch said, we have to get rid of him. So. The slandered and persecuted Metropolitan was forced to leave Alexandria in 1890 without a trial, without explanation and without being given an opportunity to defend himself. He had very little money and a few bags since whatever money he had went either to the poor or toward his expenditures for printing religious writings. He was 44 years old at the time 
a bishop without a throne. So he lost his diocese, and so there's just this bishop. It's like one one so you can relate to. It's like a, you can say a priest, a, a married priest without a parish, just a priest, just there in limbo. He carried with him a letter that was published in an Alexandrian newspaper by the Orthodox Christians of Cairo, which is where he was stationed. At the end of the letter, there was 900 signatures. The heading of the letter was a letter from the Greek community in Cairo, because obviously Greeks lived, like Greeks live in Australia, Greeks lived in, in, in Egypt. Um, part of the letter read as follows. I'm going to read you a little bit of the letter so that you can get a feeling of what the people thought about the, the, the saint being forced to leave Egypt. He, they said, your, this was in the newspaper, your decision to depart from Egypt has greatly moved and saddened us. The Church of Alexandria will lose one of its most eminent hierarchs who has greatly touched our lives. The many benefactions given by you for those in need, your insightful sermons, like he, they loved the way he preached, your great virtues your suitab- and suitability, have left us deeply grieving at your departure because we feel within our hearts an emptiness for we know that without you we will suffer loss and damage. You who are the most compassionate of hierarchs, of bishops, and the most loving and energetic of the clergy. This shows you why the other clergy there were jealous of him because the people loved him. And the people... By having his example, the people can say, that's a proper hierarch. While the other ones, because you've got contrast, you see? So you've got black, white. That's contrast. So you've got Saint Nectarius, this energetic, virtuous person who, was, who dedicated his life to serve the people, giving money to the poor. And then you've got the other ones there. Dead people. So you can. So that was obvious, and they knew that. They didn't like that. He kept this letter, and he would often read it when he was down, when he would be, as we'll read later on. When he arrived in Athens, he left Egypt. Now he arrived in Athens. That's where we left off last time. He had the intention of travelling to Mount Athos, so that he could lead a deeper monastic life. So he says, "Well, what's the point? Maybe it's God's will for me." Not to stay in the world and serve the people. Maybe it's God's will for me to go and to go to Mount Athos and just uh, lead a spiritual uh, monastic life there. He was also attracted to the great libraries of Mount Athos because this, because remember that Saint Nicholas was a scholar, a great academic as well as uh, a holy person. Like today, there's a lot of academics, but not much holiness. But he was academic. He was he loved to study the holy fathers and. Man Athos had great libraries full of ancient books. So he had that thought, maybe I should just go there. But some people urged him to stay in Greece where he could greatly benefit the people through his preaching, writings and spiritual guidance. They were saying, don't go. Greece needs you. The Bishop of Patras, uh, Damaskinos especially, was one of these. So not everyone was against him, even though we'll see that a lot were. But the Bishop of Patras, he actually said, no, don't, stay he knew that the Metropolitan had Nectarius led a holy life and that his preaching and writings were divinely inspired. 
So this bishop knew that Nectarius was, a, was saintly, was a holy person, and that he had been slandered, etc. The saint of God decided to stay in Athens. He said, I would have gone, and this is what he said, this is his exact words, I would have gone to the desert and in the caves if it wasn't for the fact that the whole nation is confused and thirsting for the kingdom of God. Orthodoxy can give it to these people. Greece was spiritually starved. Remember that it was only a few years before that they had thrown out the Turks. And during, during the time of the Turks, the Turks did not allow Greeks to be educated. So there was a lot of ignorance, which we'll hear more about later. When he finally arrived in Athens, he had no money. Must have spent it on the boat. He, had no, he didn't have any money even to buy some bread. He asked no one for assistance and hoped only in God's help. The Metropolitan found a room to rent in a neighbourhood in the outskirts of Athens. So he found a, a room there. The house was owned by a childless widow whose name was Mrs Andromachi. That was the lady's name. So she had like a house with two rooms that she rented out. And the saint went there. And in those days, obviously, they didn't ask for any bond because if they did, he wouldn't have got the room because he had no money. Even though he was suffering so much from these trials, his zeal to serve the church did not decrease, which is why he stayed. He decided to stay. It was his desire to be appointed the bishop of a diocese in the Church of Greece. So he said to himself, "Okay, Alexandria doesn't want me. The Church of Alexandria doesn't want me. So I will become a bishop in Greece." He kept on knocking on the door of the office of the Archbishop of Athens, Yermanos, for an appointment, but was continually given excuses that he was either ill or in a meeting or that he was very busy, or that he was travelling. So obviously they weren't allowing him to see the Archbishop. There's all these excuses. He also kept visiting all the members of the Synod. You know, Greece might have 70, 80 bishops, but there's also the ruling Synod at the time, which makes smaller decisions. I think there's 12 of them, I think. So that's called the ruling Synod. So they, even though they're bishops in areas, they come to uh, Greece often, to Athens, where they make decisions and they have the greater synods later on when they all get together. Uh, he also um, visited even bishops that were visiting in Athens at the time. Might have been a, the Bishop of Thessalonica that, was, that came down for some business or some other things and he would even go to them and say, please help me um, to find a diocese, etc, etc. He also uh, visited politicians and parliamentarians and anyone else who might have had influence to obtain a diocese. Many times he was given some hope regarding various positions, only to be disappointed and hurt when he discovered that the promises and opportunities were empty. So they would say, yeah, yeah, we've got something. Something's coming up soon. But they were just running, giving him the runaround. He endured terrible glances, dirty looks in other words, whenever he would go to these places, sarcastic comments, and at times had the door closed in his face, Despite, despite all his efforts, he suffered continual humiliation, shame, disappointment and hurt. He would often return to his room exhausted and, spirit, and one can say psychologically, emotionally depleted from what he was going through. Why were they treating him like that? Well, we'll have to see, won't we? Metropolitan Nectarius finally met Archbishop Yermanos 
in the hallway outside his office by accident. So the Metropolitan, as he usually did, goes back down to Athens, goes to the office of the Archbishop to ask the secretaries there, can I see him? But by accident, or God's providence, he saw the Archbishop in the hallway, so the Archbishop this time couldn't give the excuse. And the Archbishop told him that he was encountering a number of obstacles in finding him a diocese because he was not a Greek citizen. Remember that he was born in, under, in, the, um, in the Ottoman Empire. He was Greek, but not officially a Greek citizen. The Holy One said to the Archbishop that he has given up seeking a diocese and that all he wanted was to be a preacher in order to preach the word of God. The saint, I think, kind of worked out that they're not, they're not going to give him a diocese. So he said, okay, all I want now is to be able to preach. Remember in the last talk, we talked about that his desire was to preach. And when he was left, when he went to the boat to leave from his town to go to Constantinople, and then the captain wouldn't let him on in the beginning, and then he, he said that he was, he was crying and was saying, what's going to happen to me now? My dream of becoming a preacher, because he wanted to go and study, is, is, is falling apart. So his whole life was dedicated to preaching the word of God and serving people, which is the way it should be. Now, of course, we know that some people become priests for different reasons. Some people become bishops for different reasons. But the real reason one becomes a priest and becomes a bishop is to save souls. Others become for vainglorious reasons. Others become for power. Others become who knows what. But... Um, this is a, a person whose desire was a true desire to serve God's church. The Archbishop promised that he would present this to the Synod. He said, I'll take your request to the Synod to give you a position as a preacher. The Archbishop gave him permission at least to serve some liturgies and other services which enabled him to receive some small donations and payments. But none of this was permanent. So as a, um, he was given permission to serve some panahitas, as we say, like Nimosima, memorial prayers, some malebans, some liturgies here and there. And obviously when he does those things, might do a baptism for someone. Then he was, in other words, the bishop, the archbishop said you can do those things, which is what a priest does. He was given the permission to do a couple of things which even an ordinary priest can do. And people would give him a little bit of money for, for those things, some donations, and that's how he uh, got something because he had not one cent or whatever they used in those days, drachmas. When he was not looking for a position in the church or performing a service here and there, he would spend his free time in his little um, uh, boarding house there where he was and he would uh, pray, he was, he was studying, writing various theological papers. He didn't stop writing. He was a great writer, as we'll see later on. And I wanted I put a little note here. We notice here that he did not stop his spiritual life during afflictions and sufferings. Unlike a lot of us, as soon as we start to suffer, as soon as we start going through things, we give up. So something happens, all of a sudden we stop praying. Some even stop going to church. Stop, 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 uh, stop uh, reading the, the Bible. It's, sometimes it's a reaction as if to say, why should I 
Why should I go to church? Why should I pray to God if he's allowing me to suffer? Because the person doesn't understand, as we, read in the, as we heard in the beginning, that God, in his love, sends us sufferings. But he didn't stop. He kept on going. And we'll see that right through. As many stabs as they gave him, he kept on doing his duties. And that's important. Because I see it very often that when, even I was talking to someone the other day, some, some, um, uh, a, a man who he says having some troubles with his wife or something, and he said that, uh, oh, well, as soon as I begin to pray, straight away something happens, or she's rude to me, or something, she says my fault, and then he goes, what's the point? And then he says, I'm not going to do any more, I'm not going to struggle anymore. See, that means that that person was never leading a spiritual life in the first place, even though he's been in the church for 25 years. 25 years in the church itself, 30, whatever it's been, 30 years in the church, and as soon as one affliction occurs, he gives up. Be careful because that, is, um, that does happen. We are, uh, to, uh, it can happen to all of us. After some months, Metropolitan Tyrus's rent was overdue. And to make things worse, he often went without food. The landlady found it difficult to understand how a bishop could end up in such poverty and need. So this woman had this bishop living, like bishops had, um, you know, living the diocese, etc. This this person was living in them like this. She's just, what's what's going on? Especially in Greece, as we'll read later on, like um, the the bishops had were like. Despots like these high and mighty people, unapproachable, like glorious people, unlike we see saintly bishops like St. John of Shanghai and San Francisco, St. Nectarius and others who were with the people and serving the people. They were approachable. These people were like as if they were, um, I don't know, like popes or something where they're so far you can't even come near them. And that's what she was saying. Like, what's, what's, uh, how can this person be living in my house? She decided to write to her brother, who lived in Egypt, to ask him about this metropolitan, who was living in one of the rooms in her boarding house. Her brother wrote back and said that all those who knew the metropolitan spoke very highly of him, that he was holy and pious, that he was very charitable, highly educated, and very concerned with the spiritual life of the faithful. When she read this, she became even more confused by the whole matter. Well, if that's the case, if this person's so great, such a holy person, why is he being treated like this? Nevertheless, she felt that she needed to become stricter and demand the overdue rent, but somehow she found it difficult to do this because she could see that the metropolitan that was living in her house was a holy person, but she had also to live herself. Three, uh, on one occasion, she noticed that the saint of God had not left his room for three days. Her first thought was that he could be fasting, but then she came to the realisation that he must, he must not be eating, he must have not eaten because he had no money. She decided to prepare a meal of meat, soup, two eggs, fresh bread, cheese, a piece of cake and some fruit, and she took it, so God moved her. She took, him, she took the meal to him and found him on his knees praying with tears. In embarrassment, he got up and he apologised to her uh, for, failing to, uh, for falling behind in the rent. 
and she and said that he had written to someone to send him some money. So he was embarrassed that he couldn't pay the rent. He thought that when he first took the room, he obviously thought, well, they're going to give me a diocese, I will pay her back. But they didn't give her a diocese and the money that he was getting wasn't, wasn't much at all. So he, fought, he, he fell behind in the rent. He was apologising and he had written, in fact, he had actually written to his brother in Chios for some financial assistance. The little money he received from performing services was obviously not enough. Mrs Andromachi noticed that he had become so thin that his cheeks had sunken in. She said, he, uh, how could this have happened to you? She was saying to him, to be treated like this, in other words. He answered, it's a trial from the devil. When he noticed the meal, he thanked her for her kindness. The Holy One prayed that God will always provide for her and that she never find, any, find herself in want. The landlady began to cry and pleaded with him not to mention the rent again. He blessed her and prayed that the Most Holy Theotokos intercede for her forever. So I'll read the first part. He said that he was so moved that she brought this food to him, the compassion that she was showing him and says, you know, don't worry about the rent, etc. She was, he was so, she was so moved that he prayed to God that she never be in need again. And furthermore, he blessed her and prayed that the mother of God pray for her, pray to her son, meaning to Christ, forever. Now, what a blessing that is. Now, of course, um, a lot of times when we do good to someone, when we help, as we heard in Talk 48, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, when we give money to the poor, when we help those who are in need, and they give a blessing from their heart to you, to us who give or to, what, or to the person who gives, they're very powerful. And we, if we, as we said, those who have money, God has loaned us that money so that we, meaning those who have money, can give it to those who don't. That's why God has made some rich and some poor. And the rich are in need of the poor because the rich won't go to heaven unless they give to the poor. And, when, and, and remember those examples of rich people that used to run to the desert to find some monks, holy monks, to give them money and the monks would say, oh, we, we, we have no need of it here, we have no need of the money. And they go, please, please get on their knees and say, please take it. They were so desperate to get a blessing. So in other words, they, the rich, were begging the poor monks to take their money. And that's what we should do. If we have money, if we have surplus, then we need to give it to those who are poor. And because the rich or those who are well off or whatever have need of their blessings. So when you give money to a widow that's got off some children or when you give money to a pensioner that has need, there's many of them today, especially in um, the way it's going now, and when we give money and we alleviate their financial stress, they can buy a little bit extra food or, buy, or turn on the heater when sometimes they don't turn it on because they can't afford the electricity, 
and those people say, God bless you, I thank you very much for that from their heart, that goes on you and your family and children and, and those who have even died, relatives. So, there is a part here which I wrote here quickly. Why didn't he ask for assistance when in the last, the, the second last talk, on talk 48, blessed the merciful, that shall obtain mercy, I said in there that when we are poor, when we are in need, we are obliged to ask those, to ask others for help. There's nothing wrong with that. But why didn't he do that? And, I, and I've looked at this and I thought to myself, okay, well, so, uh, we have some saints who gave everything away to the poor, like Saint Philaret, the almsgiver, who gave away everything so that his family had nothing. But yet we're not obliged to do that. These are exceptions. These saints had such great faith, like he had such great faith that he just said, I will wait for God to deal with this problem. That was his faith. This is, ex this is an, an exception. In general, people in need, whether money need or help, physical help or whatever, there is nothing wrong with asking for help. It's actually demonic when people say, I don't want anyone's help. I'm, de I'm independent. And as soon as, that's why as soon as they get a bit sick, they, their arthritis is too much for them and they can't move around anymore, then they say, I'm not going to have people coming to help me, and they just do themselves in. That's the way the world's become. So let's go on. The reasons behind his continual rejections. As I said before, why was he being rejected? As mentioned earlier, as, he, as at first he visited a number of politicians, parliamentarians, members of the Holy Synod, other bishops that were visiting Athens from other dioceses, and the Archbishop of Athens, in order to obtain a position in the church, like a diocese. We said that was one, uh, one may ask, why did the Holy Metropolitan find every door he knocked on closed? And I've got three reasons here. Number one, whenever Metropolitan Charles would show his letter of release from the Patriarchate of Alexandria, the wording of the letter created suspicion. If you those of you who were here last time, I will tell you what, what it said. It says that he was, quote, unable to become accustomed to the climate of Egypt and his migrating. That's obvious that that's um, an excuse. So by having that in the letter that the Patriarch wrote, He's unable to take the weather in Egypt and therefore he has to leave. People saw that and go, must be something else. He must have done something for them to get rid of him. And that was the purpose of the way the letter was written as well. And that basically he can go wherever he wants. He was given a release and saying that, that Metropolitan Nectaris is released from Egypt and goes, can go where, where, wherever he wants. This was unheard of. In the, in the Orthodox world. When someone's released, you're released from one diocese to another. When he was told to leave, like for example, if I'm released from the, the Russian Church of Australia and New Zealand, the diocese, then I'm released, the bishop here has to then write a letter to release me to another church might be Serbia or Greece or Russia or America. So the bishop here writes a letter to the bishop wherever, say I want to go to America because I can't take the climate here. So I go to America and so what happens is the bishop contacts the bishop over there and says, "Do you can, will you take this person? 
And the bishop says, yes, I will. So then this bishop writes a letter of release, sends it to that bishop, and then I then become, I go under him. In this case, he was under no one. He was like that, just this bishop. Number two, without the, without the saint knowing, letters began to arrive in Athens from Alexandria, both signed and anonymous. These letters were sent to influential people in Greece. They were full of slander against Metropolitan Octarius, some stating that he was suspended for, quote, reasons known to the patriarchate. Get it? Reasons known to the patriarchate. In other words, it makes a person suspicious. While others stated that he was suspended for disobedience and immorality, that he had done something uh, wrong, um, had fallen with someone or something. Therefore, many of these people had received one or more of these letters, and that's why they were giving him looks. Oh, look, it's him. Or, you know, we're not going to give him anything. And they'll root him and all those things. Number three, apart from the letters, they, there was also rumours. They had, they had heard, these people, that St Nectarius was knocking on the doors and saying, give me a diocese or help me to the parliamentarians, the bishops, etc. They had heard also rumours that were circulating around Athens that he was immoral and disobedient, etc., etc. There were even rumours that the Holy Metropolitan was soon to be excommunicated. So there was, there was rumours going around saying what he did in Egypt was so bad that soon they will excommunicate him. They will, they will uh, defrock him as a bishop and excommunicate him to cut him off from the church as if he was a heretic or something. What was, motivating, what was the motivation of the slanderers? What was motivating these bishops and higher clergy like Archimandrites, etc., in the Patriarchate of Alexandria in Egypt to continue their persecution of the Holy Metropolitan Nectarius. Why did they hasten to send their slanderous letters and to circulate rumours after the Holy One left? Was it not enough that they succeeded in having him removed from his positions as Metropolitan, as Secretary of the Patriarchate, because he was also Secretary of the Patriarchate? He was also a Patriarchal Trustee, and eventually having forced even from Egypt altogether. So wasn't that enough for them? Okay, he's gone. He's gone. That's it. Aren't you happy now? Why, is the, why did they continue this uh, warfare? Number one, they feared that their jealousy, hate and deceit would be exposed and that all, and that all this stemmed from the fact that they had greatly desired the positions which had been given to the Holy Nectarius and they feared that he could have become Patriarch after the death of Patriarch Sophronius. They didn't want people to know that they were slandering him, that they did all this because they were jealous of him, because they wanted to become either next Patriarch, because the other one was, was going to die soon, who's old, or, or they were jealous and hated him because they wanted to be patriarchal trustee or the secretary of the synod, etc., etc. They wanted these positions. But the patriarch then loved the saint so much, he saw him as a virtuous man and kept on giving him all these positions. The saint never asked for any of those positions. He didn't even ask to become a bishop. Because if he didn't become Metropolitan of Pentapolis, they would have made someone else, another, uh, another Archimandrite that was there. 
So they were upset, and they didn't want people to know that that's the, what, what, was, um, what made them do all that to him. Number two, they were also full of hate and jealousy because of his holiness and popularity among the people. They knew that he was different to them, like I said earlier, and that they were not living up to the priesthood. The loving letter full of praises in the newspaper written by Orthodox Christians, the Patriarchate of Alexandria, would have made them worse. That's even in public now. Look, they're even writing in the newspaper and it's and making them look bad. And so it wasn't just the fact that they wanted his positions, but also they were jealous because the people loved him so much, like I said earlier. Their mania had no limits. That's like they became mentally ill. And they, um, they greatly desired to hurt him in any way they could. They could not calm down. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Remember what this Pharisee said about Christ? All the people were going to Christ. Before Christ came, they had the positions, the honours and the glory. But then, And that's why this line is so great. Because the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. We've got to do something because, can't you see, look, the world has gone after him. The same spirit. Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. As there were Pharisees then, there are Pharisees now. The church is not something that was in the past. The church is continually moves the same. So that's the same thing. These people had the same spirit as the Pharisees of old. Number three, they feared that the Holy Nectarius could be reinstated as metropolitan and the people then could demand that he be made patriarch. So the other reason is, is that they're scared that if the people find out what happened, then the, the government or whatever could force and say no. He was unjustly dismissed. He has to go back to become a metropolitan. And once he arrives back, the people can rise up and say, we want him now as patriarch. And they didn't want that to happen. So what they did, they kept on um, sending pitavlus, as someone said once. They kept on sending missiles into Athens of all these slanders to make sure that no one ever believes him. That, uh, um, and, oh, there's another one. Number four, they were enemies of holiness, similar to the demons. Some might say, isn't that a bit overdone to say that? But one of the optimate elders, as I said last time, was asked, why do some Orthodox Christians persecute the righteous ones? Why do they persecute spiritual people? And, and, the, and the, one of the optimate elders, I forgot who it was, said there's two reasons why. Number one, they are, that they are leading sinful lives and therefore easily become influenced by the demons. So we have... Orthodox Christians in the church, we have, there's um, two groups there. We have those who lead, who are leading sinful lives. Even though they are going to church, they're still leading sinful lives, not repenting, just doing sins without even struggling with them. Those people start to, be, start to become under the influence of demons and the demons use those people to attack the, the um those who are, who are um, serving Christ, and B, the second reason, that they are leading deceived spiritual lives. Then there's the other group 
who aren't leading sinful lives, they're actually leading spiritual lives. They pray, they fast, they commune, they read books, etc., etc. But their spiritual lives are, de- are deceived. Are, they're, they're, they're deceived. And I talked about that in talks 41 and 42. I even mentioned that Francis of Assisi, the, um, the Catholic uh, saint, that his method, his method of prayer, his spiritual life, uh, uh, was deceived. He, he was deceived. And because what it says there that he, he, would, he believed that he could unite with Christ, be, you know, become holy, not through the proper way, which is this, through the commandments of Christ, but some through us, some other techniques that he used. And, um, and we have those people also in the church today who are not leading a proper spiritual life according to the Holy Fathers. And when we, when, if we do that type of thing, then we begin to hate and dislike those who are truly spiritual. So that's why you might say, but if they saw that he was a holy person, why do they hate him? Well, one, they're doing sins and therefore they've got demonic influence on them or they're leading a, a, a deceived spiritual life. And this applies to all Christians who are living. Whoever, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, some time later, the Holy Synod finally gave a letter of recommendation to Metropolitan Nectarius for him to be given a position as a preacher, not a diocese, just a preacher. Even though this may seem compassionate in essence, this was an act of humiliation because even a monk can preach. Even a layperson can preach because in Greece they also have lay preachers. So you can be a layperson and preach, you can be a monk and preach, you can be a priest and preach. However, for the Holy Nectarius, this was joyous news because he could fulfil his initial desire, which was that he wanted to be a preacher. He did not fall into despair, or was he disturbed at, in the apparent humiliation? Why? The change of heart. Why did the synod begin? Because in the beginning they were mucking around and all that. Probably the archbishop and some of the bishops who were favourable towards him convinced the synod to at least give this recommendation. Remember the bishop, the bishop of Pathos and even the archbishop Yadamonos, once he got to know the metropolitan, the, 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 the saint, he began to be favourable towards him. But he was in a difficult position because a lot of people were against him and things like that. But anyway, through through this influence, they finally gave this letter of recommendation that he is allowed to preach. All he now wanted was to obtain a position as a preacher in order to preach the word of God. He was not interested in big money or glory. He was known to have said that he just wanted to be paid a little money because as a preacher... It's in Greece that you're still a civil servant, so you get paid by the government, and he would get a little salary. And he said, all I want is enough to be able to have enough for a little bit of food. His main desire was to use his theological knowledge and divine gifts given to him by God to save souls. So he was happy even with just that. 
After one year of trying to obtain a position as a bishop in the beginning and later as a preacher, because he hasn't got a job yet, without success, someone suggested that he should seek an appointment with the Minister of Religion and Education, who was a layman. For three weeks, he went every day to the Ministry of Ecclesiastical Affairs to seek an appointment with the minister in the hope that a position in the church would be given to him as a preacher. The staff would continually tell him that they were looking into the matter. So when he would go for an appointment to, the, to there, to the um, building, he says, can I speak to the minister? They said, um, oh, they'll look into it, whatever. Seeing his daily persistence, they became irritated with the Metropolitan and even treated him disrespectfully. And even though the Holy Notarius was hurt by, their, by this treatment, he put all his trust in God, patiently continuing in prayer and in the writing of spiritual books and pamphlets for the instruction of Orthodox Christians. So while he was waiting for a position, while he was being rejected continually, while he was being subjected to rudeness, etc., he still was doing his spiritual work. He was still praying, he was still writing his spiritual books and pamphlets, etc. And unlike, as I said before, those who give up their spiritual life during trials and afflictions, we don't give up. Whatever happens, we keep on going on with our spiritual life. Even if we fall into the worst sin, we mustn't fall into despair and say, oh, well, God's going to not forgive me. God forgives everything. We must keep on going in the spiritual life, like St. Peter who fell and he kept on going. He finally got an interview with the minister, finally got an interview, and expressed to him the following. He says, the saint said, I am overwhelmed by a desire to serve our Lord Jesus Christ and his holy Orthodox Church. I want to preach his word and bring souls to Christ for their salvation. That's what he said to this lay person. So can you imagine now, you've got a bishop sitting there and we have this lay person there who has the power to say yes or no, etc. Now one must say, that doesn't sound right. They then discussed briefly what had taken place in the Church of Alexandria. So this minister said, well, what's going on? What's this I hear about? you being dismissed from Alexandria, what's going on? And the Holy One added and said, the most holy patriarch Sophronios, my forever venerable benefactor, was recently influenced by my slanderers to dismiss me from my position and to have me removed from Egypt. And now I have nothing. I am not even able to buy my daily food. Now, this does not look like a person who didn't say anything, because what I said before, in, a, in another life of saint, sometimes they just people just don't write things out properly and distort. It's, here's one life of saint, I won't say which one, but anyway. It says here that um, the saint made no attempt to justify himself, but placed all his hope in the promise of Christ, who had said, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you, and other all kinds... So it's saying that the saint didn't say anything, he just accepted it. But here we see that he, that he is, in a way, saying, well, it's, he's not just sitting there and saying nothing. He's actually saying, I was dismissed unlawfully because uh, I was slandered, etc., etc. So I don't know what these people write, distorted lives of saints. Um, so he said, the most holy patriarchs of Florence might forever 
venerable benefactor, was recently influenced by my slanders to dismiss me from my position and to have me removed from Egypt, and now I have nothing. I, have, I am not even able to buy my daily food. Saint Basil the Great, such a great saint, and Saint Gregory the Theologian, another great saint. Saint Gregory the Theologian was sent by Saint Basil the Great to a diocese. And Saint Gregory, which I read in his life a few months ago, which I found very interesting, Saint Gregory was not happy with his post with where he was sent, because it was a it was a very I don't know, it wasn't a good diocese. And he often complained to Saint Basil about this. This is Saint Gregory the theologian. But today we have these distorters who say, when you have any complaint, if you have any problems, you say nothing. And what they do, as we'll see later on, they create people who become mentally ill, which I'll explain later on in an example. But this, but this saint opened up his pain and was saying his, as we say in Greek, parapono, he was saying his complaint. After this, the minister remained silent and then said, Your Eminence, it is true that we urgently need preachers here in Greece, but you are not eligible for a position. The Metropolitan somewhat disturbed us, why is that? And the minister answered, because you are a foreigner, you are not a Greek citizen. The Holy One was stunned at the reply and said, so I'm not Greek anymore. He stood up and respectfully bowed to the minister and left the office. As he was walking down the stairs crying inconsolably with his head down, crying, he was suddenly stopped by a rich nobleman who had personally known him in Egypt and who was now respected politician and advisor to the government, some politician who the saint knew from Egypt. And he was obviously in Athens for business and... He met him on the steps. He says, he was shocked to see the Holy Metropolitan in such a state and asked him, why are you so distressed, your eminence? Why are you so sorrowful? What's wrong? What's happening to you? The Holy One looked up and recognised the man. He had met him in Egypt. He then opened up and told him, have you not heard of my situation, Mr. Melas? Well, I've heard something, said the man. The Holy One then said, they dismissed me from Egypt for no reason. I was not given the opportunity to give an answer. I was not allowed to have a meeting with patriarchs of Ronios. They, they, they said, you don't go. They spread slanders against me and now I've been in Greece for one year looking for a position to serve the church. I would then be able to receive a little pay in order to provide myself with bread. I just met with the minister to ask him for a position as a preacher anywhere in the country. He said that he can't because I'm not even considered a Greek citizen. How can I not be distressed? See, I don't understand this life of saint. Because, oh, he didn't get upset, he just took everything. Doesn't, doesn't sound like that. See, you've got to read detailed lives of saints to get the picture. Sometimes these short ones and it says, and the martyr was cut and he was, his fingers were being cut off and he was standing there and he was praying to God and he felt no pain. As if it's some super hero or something. But the thing is, the saints did feel pain. But they got to the stage where 
at times where they were overcome by so much grace that they did not feel pain. But you have to understand that they did, they did suffer. Like you see someone sick. You see them with cancer, for example, and they're in so much pain. It's very painful. And then sometimes they are in a lot of pain and other times... Because they're being commemorated, they just communed God's grace, that they're peaceful and they, it's like they don't feel the pain at all, independent of the medication. That's the same because as St. Mark of Ephesus says, that a person who's suffering sickness is equivalent to the martyrdom that the saints went through. So they are martyrs. So that's the same thing. We've got to be very careful of um, the way we read things. Don't distort. Here we see the saint is in pain and is very upset. Mr. Malas then asks, what about the Holy Synod? What, what are they saying? The Holy Nectarius said, they do not oppose me as a preacher. In fact, the Synod gave me a letter, or a, a recommendation letter. Mr. Malas said, your eminence, please come with me. Together they returned to the minister's office. Immediately, Mr. Melas, in anger, began shouting and saying, Mr. Minister, why do you, did you deny a position as a preacher to this most reverend clergyman who holds a degree in theology? Indeed, he can also provide you with the Holy Synod's recommendation. So if he's not eligible, if he's not qualified to be given a position, then who is? So this 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 man, this politician, was very upset and was shouting at the minister who just said to the saint, you can't be, you can't have a position. The minister was left shocked and speechless. In another book I read, he was saying he was going, like porky pig. After composing himself, he looked at the holy nectarius and said, your eminence, would you consider a position in Evia? He responded, the saint responded, indeed, I would be happy to go even to the most inhospitable uh, area, so as long as I have an orthodox flock to care for. You can send me wherever you want. You can send me to the worst diocese. I don't care, as long as I have people to serve. And um, uh, um, so he went, so he was, a, uh, yeah, anyway. And it says, so in February 1891, the Holy Metropolitan Nectarius was given a position as a preacher in Evia, which is an island in Greece. More about that later. He accepted the position with thanksgiving, uh, even though it was a task a simple monk or a gifted layman or could perform or a priest. He did not regard the position as beneath him, but was overjoyed that he could once again preach the word of God and serve the people. Thus, the, that great hierarch left Athens for Evia with apostolic zeal, uh, and continually giving thanks to God for granting him this opportunity. He arrived in Halkida, the capital city of Evia, which is the second largest Greek island. Uh, there he rented a two-room two, um, two apartment. When I did the life of Elder Porfirios, he was, he was from Evia. And then he came back to Evia um, when he got sick in Manathos, etc. Um, Evia, this is very moving to me because Evia is where my mother's from. And later on we're going to hear that all the towns that he went through, all these towns which, which are very close to where 
uh, where, where she was from. Obviously, she was born in 1925, so that he was there earlier than that. But still, relatives could have heard this, um, this great saint um, preach. Evia has a number of things. It's got St. John the Russian, the, the relics of St. John the Russian. Evia has the, um, uh, the monastery there of St. David of, of um, Evia. It's got... Um, so St. John the Russian's relics are incorrupt. He was a Russian that was captured and taken to Asia Minor and then, they, then the Greeks from there brought him to Greece um, and his relics incorrupt. St. John the Russian, St. David of Evia and we have now St. Nectarius who's going to be here for two and a half years preaching. The first thing he did was to visit the office of the Bishop of Evia. Each area has their own bishop, so Evia's got their bishop. In order to greet him, that's the, uh, that's the uh, custom. However, the bishop was away at the time. He did, however, meet the second in charge and some other staff members, both clergy and probably lay people. They greeted him with coldness and they looked at him with suspicion. Obviously, we know why. Even though this hurt the Holy One, he did not let it overtake him, but instead he focused on the fact that he'd be able to preach and serve the faithful of the island. So he was hurt by the way that they uh, were acting with him, but he knew if he said anything, they could, he could lose his position. That's what I think it means by that he didn't let it over, overtake him. I mean, even St. Xenia, as we read, that when the kids were making fun of her, uh, she started chasing them with her, with her um, walking stick, that she lost her um, thing. It doesn't mean that, that the um, saints don't become angry, that they, don't, they, don't, they might not tell someone off, etc., etc. So, you know, I don't know if he would have done that, but it, from, what the saint, from what the life says, he just said basically that he said nothing. Because he could have said, I'm a bishop, and you don't speak like that, but he didn't say anything. Notices were posted outside the cathedral church in Halkiva. Now remember, as I said, Evia is an island. It's the second biggest. I think the biggest is Crete, I think. So a uh, uh, very big island. And it's separated from mainland Greece with a bridge. When I, I, I was 16 years old when I first went, for my first time there, and my, my um, cousins took me there to the, to the bridge. The bridge is very famous, that particular waterway. It's famous because, unlike normal tides, the, the waters there, and uh, they actually made songs about it. Because I remember my mother, back in her days when she used to listen to a lot of music, she used to play these Greek records, and they used to have one of them was, was to do with six hours up, six hours down. As a young kid, I didn't know what, what they were talking about, but when I went, I understood. That, that waterway there, the tides go six hours one way, and then suddenly they slow down, slow down, slow down, and all of a sudden they reverse and go six hours the other way. And then as they're going that, then they slow down again, and they, you can see the waters up because I was there for the change, and then goes out the other way. And many scientists have tried to work why that happens. They cannot work out why those waters go six hours up, six hours down. But anyway, that's a, that's a thing that a lot of tourists go there to Evia to see that, that change of the water. Um, so... He was there in Halkida, which is where that bridge is. That's, that's the, um, the capital of Evia. And they, um, they posted 
on the cathedral, on the main church there, um, pamphlets saying that there's going to be a series of talks given uh, at the, at the, um, during the Divine Liturgies every Sunday for a few weeks. In preparing for the first sermon, he prayed, fasted and studied. The subject that he chose to talk about was eternal life. Now, I love this part. In preparing for his sermon, he prayed, fasted and studied. Today, many clergymen might study, but I don't know how many actually prepare spiritually. So in other words, they sit down, they write their notes for a sermon because they've gone to university or theological schools or seminaries, etc. So they believe that they've got knowledge but they don't understand that knowledge without spirituality is dead. But we see here the saint to prepare for his sermon. He actually prayed, fasted and studied. After completing his preparation, he fell into a temptation. He felt defeated and lacked his usual zeal. Because he, you know, we, we all know from the last talk and this talk as well, how much zeal he had was to, to, to preach the word of God. Suddenly, this zeal just went away. He understood that this was a temptation of the enemy from the devil and he immediately turned to prayer. And I wanted to say here that there are people who think that they say, oh, I like to do a talk or I like to do preaching or I like to uh, uh, talk about religion or something like that to people. They don't understand that, as we saw from the example of St. Nectarius, that when someone opens their mouth to speak the word of God, then uh, the devil is permitted to attack that person. I remember a lay person that was, I once, he used to ring me a few times, and he said to me, I want to, I want to do some talks. He was a lay person, in other words, he wasn't a clergyman. I want to do some talks. I said to him, I don't, don't think that's a good idea because I don't think that you're spiritually prepared because he, you know, his lifestyle wasn't really one that would say, I mean, he didn't even know how to pray properly, etc., etc. So I said to him, I think it's a good idea. I tried to explain to him that if you do that, you will, you will um, you'll go through temptations which are which are um, very uh, serious and you won't be able to endure. Anyway, he didn't listen to me. He went ahead, started doing some talks, and then after a while he fell morally. When I say morally, I mean he fell into serious sins. And then years later, after he called me a heretic and everything else, he called me because I tried to say that he shouldn't do talks, then he said to me, you were right, um... I have been basically roasted. It's like someone put him in an oven and roasted him. And that's how much he um, suffered. And he was also ridiculed as well because people found out. So this, is, this could have been in any country. It could have been America. It could have been in England. It could have been in Greece. It doesn't really matter where it was. The, the example is that um, um, it's very difficult. And that's why today... Anyway, we'll go more on to sermons later... After, so he fell into it, but what did he do? He prayed. Why didn't the other person pray that I'm talking about? Because he didn't know how to pray. So the same as what I was saying before. When people go through temptations, 
the first thing they do is they stop spiritual life. They don't think, oh, I should pray. The saints prayed when they were tempted, when they suffered, when they went through afflictions. But people today don't know how to pray. If they do pray, they pray in a pharisaical manner, in a not in a proper manner. True prayer comes from suffering and affliction. That's why God allows afflictions so that, you see, when, when everything's going all right and we do prayer, we sit there and we do our prayer and we do the prayer and we, like we admire ourselves and we say, oh, look, how, oh, look, I'm praying, I'm spiritual, I'm holy, etc. But those prayers are, as we said, hypocritical, pharisaical. But when we're suffering and then we pray, for example, a person can say, oh, my child is sick and the doctors cannot find what's wrong. I'm scared that something might happen to my child. Then that person, if he's correct, or if, if, if he knows, if, if, if he does the right thing, goes to his icons or to church, etc., and starts to pray from his or her heart, asking for God to enlighten the doctors or to help the child in whatever. See, that's true prayer. That's why God allows all these things to happen, to make us depend on him, um, and by, by depending on God, we become humble. The first Sunday comes. On the first Sunday, only a small number of people attended, even though the faithful that usually attended that particular church were many and pious. That church usually is full. But when they found out that it's going to be the Metropolitan from Egypt, etc., etc., hardly no one came. This saddened the Holy One, especially because his presence was well advertised. So he said, company that they didn't know, because the, there was posters everywhere. So um, he took his position, turned to the icon of Christ, made a small prayer, crossed himself three times, and then began his sermon. Suddenly, some of those in the church began booing, laughing, and whispering. Their faces were full of mockery and disdain, full of hate. Then someone shouted, down with you, you two-faced one, down with you, Pharisee. Even though he was deeply hurt and felt sick and weak, the Holy One made a brave effort to continue his sermon. But the crowd's reaction only became worse, calling out the same insults, Pharisee, etc., two-faced one. Um, they weren't paying attention to anything that he said. At first, he did not understand the reason for the, for the people's reaction. But then he began to blame himself. His thought was that perhaps they did not like the topic. A priest that was present during the sermon informed the Metropolitan that he should not blame the people because his persecutors, his enemies in other words, had spread slanders even before his arrival in Evia. He returned to the altar trying with all his strength not to faint. Because when we get upset, you know when you watch, there were, some of you used to watch and some of you unfortunately still watch some movies and things like that, those shows, there's no reality. So it shows, for example, someone in a show might be, a movie or something, and it shows that someone just died. So the actor's trying to act distressed that the person, that, that they're upset that someone died or that they were, uh, um, that someone tried to kill them, etc. So their faces 
are the same as what they were even when they weren't attacked because they haven't got that true emotion. It's an, it's an act. People, especially young kids, when they watch these shows, they actually get wrong messages of, of what it is when someone's distressed. But when you watch the news, for example, and you might see someone that was... Uh, you see that they're... Because they're real. You see the faces of the people are different to what they are on those show on the movies because it's, because it's real. And their faces are completely different. That's real fear. Their eyes are sometimes opened up. They're, they're completely different. A person who's gone through a trauma, an upset, reacts in different ways. And in this case, this saint was so wounded by what happened that he felt sick and he felt like he wanted to faint. Somehow he made it back to his apartment where he cried inconsolably. Even though he had fasted in preparation for the day, he was not hungry. He then prayed in front of the cross. I understand, he prayed. In other words, he understands why they acted like that. Forgive them, dear Lord. What happened to me is not important. What is important is that I should try again. After this prayer, he, d he decided to try again next Sunday. The second Sunday arrived, and the Holy One, with much anxiety and weakness of body and soul, went to church while praying that God gives him the strength to face the people again. See, I love that. See, he had anxiety. He, he was weak, both physically and spiritually. He was stressed. What's going to happen? See, but when you read these Catholic lives of saints, it's like the saint was flying on wings and was flying and his face had no emotion. He was just peaceful. See, that's not orthodox lives of saints. This, so this time the topic of the sermon was on, the, on patience and forgiveness. He noticed that there were only a few people in the church, like before, their faces were full of mockery and disdain, you know, like, like hate, in other words. He began to speak. Then once again, many in the church began booing, laughing, whispering the same thing. They called out, down with you, you traitor. Down with you, you Pharisee. Even though he understood the reason for their reaction, because he was told that, they were, that, that, that people slandered him, um, he still was wounded in the heart and felt very weak and sick to the point that he wanted to faint. He then returned to the altar with difficulty. He knew that God allows one to suffer trials in order to be tested and to obtain salvation. He knew that this is what God has allowed, even though, obviously, it's difficult. Four priests and a deacon approached him later and informed him that he was being persecuted from Athens. How many of the clergy were involved? I don't know. It just says that he was being persecuted from Athens. Obviously, the Alexandrian clergy were pumping the Athenian clergy and then them, they were spreading it to others. They were spreading slanders that he was immoral. In fact, the slanderers had spread throughout the whole island. Sorry, the slanders had spread throughout the whole island of Evia. In response to them, he said, God bless them. That's the slanderers. So we read before, when they persecute you, 
bless those who hate you, etc. See, the Bible in action. The lives of saints are the Gospels in action. It doesn't matter. One day they will realise what they're doing, he said. The clergyman was surprised with his response, those four priests and a deacon. They were hoping for the Holy One to speak badly about his persecutors. Then with calmness and serenity, he departed and returned to his apartment. See, they came up and said, oh, it's those people, they're doing this and this and that. They were waiting for the saint to say, oh, they're horrible people, etc., which is what we do. But he didn't go along with them. He didn't want to converse with them. Even the first priest, I think I read in a book where he said, the first priest said to him, they're slandering you. Why don't we go and have a coffee and we can discuss it? The saint goes, no, I don't want to have a coffee. So he didn't want to go into that type of thing of um, uh, that. So that, a lot of times when we are put down, etc., we like to find people who, are, who we can join in. So we say, oh, you know, that person, he did this to us. And then we're hoping the person goes, oh, yeah, I can't stand that person. So you see, then we feel better. And that's wrong. But we have the example of the saint. What does the saint do? He didn't go on with the conversation. So it seems that the clergy from Athens had joined with the clergy of Alexandria in their persecution of the holy Nectarius. He began to have thoughts that perhaps he's not meant to be a preacher and has tried twice. But at the same time, he felt sorry for the people because they were in need of God's word. He then prayed to God, and this is the prayer he said, Lord, if it be your will that I should leave here, then may your will be done. Perhaps I'm not meant to sow, meaning to, to, to preach the word of God, among these people. Lord, you know what is best. I will return the third time this coming Sunday. Should I fail to gain their attention, then I think it would be better to serve you on Mount Athos, where I will live as a hermit far from the world, Thus, Holy Nectarius spent the week in prayer and fasting for the third time. During this week, he had thoughts to send to Athens and to the Bishop of Evia some copies of the letter that was written by the Greek community in Cairo with 900 signatures and published in an Alexandrian newspaper. Obviously, now, he was starting to be quite upset about it, about this slander. And he had a past, he had some thoughts and saying, if I show them the letter from Alexandria, how much the people loved me and how much, you know, this and that, with all these signatures, they'll know then that what happened to me was slander. But then he realised that were he to do this, Patriarch Sophronius' actions against him would be exposed and that this would become a scandal in the church. So he realised that if people found out the Patriarch Sophronios expelled him from the church for no reason, then people will say he's bad. And the saint didn't want that. He didn't want people to look at him as bad, the Patriarch, even though what he did was, was bad. He just That was the Christian thing. He didn't want him to be exposed. Therefore, he made a decision to continue suffering persecution rather than to discredit his spiritual father, Patriarch Sophronios. Remember, Patriarch Sophronios was his spiritual father and Patriarch Sophronios loved him and sent him to university 
and all these things and made him priest and made him all these positions and made him bishop. So St. Nectarius, as we read in the first talk, said, I will never forget him. I will never forget all the love that he gave me. And he kind of justified and said, it's not really his fault, but it's those around him who, because he's old, etc., that those around him influenced him, which is some truth to it, uh, influenced him to do what he did. So the saint was justifying the person and justifying the patriarch. In the meantime, Greeks from Egypt, who were aristocrats, wealthy businessmen and others who were well-known and respected in influential positions, had arrived in Athens and visited the archdiocese. So these people, all of a sudden, a lot of important people came to Athens from Egypt and went to the archdiocese there of Athens, where the archbishop is. With anger, they shouted anathema to the conspirators and shame be on Sophronios, the patriarch. Anathema is the worst word you can say to someone. Anathema means cut off from the church. Sometimes the Holy Fathers would anathematize unrepentant heretics. If they wouldn't repent and stop their heresy, then they would anathematize them. That means that they were cut off from the church. And only if they repent, of course, they would be allowed back in. But it was a way to warn people as well of how serious heresy is, etc. So, the, um, but they were using this word like liberally. They said anathema to the conspirators, to those who, who, who slandered, and shame be on Sophronios. The Greeks of Athens, seeing that such a great number of supporting metropolitan nectarius, finally understood that which was said about him was lies. So the Greeks began to realise in Athens that the, the Metropolitan was, being, was slandered and was being slandered because these Egyptians, Greek Egyptians came over and was, were telling them that it's all lies, that, he, that he's not bad, that he's not immoral, that it's all slanders. Word of this spread... And letters explaining this were received by the Bishop of Evia, which is where the, the saint was. Also, word spread quickly throughout Evia that, uh, that the clerics of the Alexandrian Patriarchate were responsible for the abominable treatment of the Holy One. So they were exposed that, um, of, 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 what they, of what they had done to him. And people started finding out. The third Sunday comes. As usual, the Holy One was preparing for his sermon, third sermon, with prayer, fasting and study. He didn't know about these people, what had happened. Because he was leading a secluded life, he was completely unaware of the events in Athens and Evia, that the truth regarding what had happened in Egypt uh, had been revealed. He didn't know anything about that. When it came time for him to preach, he noticed that the cathedral was packed to capacity. People had gathered from all parts of the island to listen to him. This time he noticed that the people did not have the same appearance as they did before, in the previous two Sundays. To his surprise, there was no booing, laughing or shouting. The audience listened quietly to every word of his sermon on the topic of pride. When the Metropolitan finally finished, the crowd erupted in applause and shouts of praise, axios, which in Greek means he is worthy. God bless you and come visit us also at different, they'll shout at all different towns in, in Evia. After this, he entered the altar, fell to his knees in, in prayer and said, I am your servant. Guide me, guide me wherever you want. Your will be done and not mine. That means he realised that God does not want him to go to Manathos and stay there. 
he understood that God wants him to stay in the world and to preach and to take care of the people. After this great event, many around the island wanted the Holy Metropolitan to come and preach in their towns. The faithful of the islands were thirsting for the word of God, so Metropolitan Nectarius travelled throughout the island preaching orthodoxy and salvation. He visited Aliveri, Karistos, Kimi, Edipsos, Limni, all these places I've been to. Aliveri was the, is the town which is closest to my mother's village. She used to tell me stories like she used to say that because um, they had no transportation those days. They used to use donkeys. So she said that uh, when they had to go to the town to pick up some supplies, they would have to wake up before, before the sun, like early in the morning so they can come back in time in the night. That's how long it took, even though it's short distance by car, but they had to go through. And they said that they used to, I don't know, leave 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, go all along with their donkeys to the town, which is Aliveri there, and then they'd buy whatever supplies they needed and then travel back so it's just interesting for me anyway that this this makes sense because I've been to all these places um, so all over the island he, he was traveling his sermons were full of grace very eloquent full of wisdom and love all of which were a result of his holy life one has to lead a spiritual life if one wants to preach uh, some to some degree during his travels he would also visit and help the poor the sick, those in prison, the helpless and the persecuted. He didn't just preach. He actually, like we, like we heard in the previous two talks, the t- talk before this one, last one, 48, Blessed of the Merciful, where it said that, you know, because um, I was in prison and you visited me, I was thirsty and you gave me drink, I was, clo- I was naked and you gave me clothes, I was hungry and you gave me food. So that's it. That's what, we're, that's what we are commanded to do. So he, he went and helped all these people. In the meantime, many people were coming to him with their sins and problems. He took the time to confess them, to resolve their problems and to comfort them as a true spiritual father. So he also did confession as well, which an ordinary priest can do. The Holy Nectarius' heart was burning with love for God and for this and for his neighbour. His desire was to save as many souls as possible, not to organise dances, not to do bingos, not to do Kris Kringles and people in red suits jumping around. That's not what the priest is, is meant to be doing. He's meant to be saving souls. At the time, as time went by, more and more people were beginning to accept him with love and reverence. Why such a change in these people who had first treated the Holy One so badly? Well, it, was, uh, it says, what I want to say is obviously they heard that a lot of things were slanders. Was it just from that that they began to, to, um, to um, become attracted to him and to, and to respect him? It was his entire life. In other words, it was his preaching. It was the fact that they heard and they, some of them would have read the, the writings that he was producing, his spiritual guidance in confession, etc., and people that come to him for advice, his works of mercy, help on the poor and the uh, and suffering, the fact that he was slandered like the saints of old, because they would have known, oh, he's been slandered like the saints used to be slandered, because all the saints were slandered, etc., and his holy way of life. It was his entire life which made them understand that this person is a spiritual person. It should be mentioned here that all those who had contact with him were spiritually transformed. Their whole lives changed. They were spiritually reborn. In other words, the Holy Nectarius brought them to Christ. So a lot of these people weren't leading spiritual lives. 
and through his prayers, through his sermons, through his guidance, etc., he was bringing these souls to Christ, which is the fruits of the Holy Spirit. That's how we know that he's that he was full of grace, the fact that he was bringing so many souls to Christ and they were changing their lives. Because of his humility and simplicity, the clergy of the island slowly forgot that he was a bishop. Instead, they would regard him as a fellow priest and would even call him father. A lot of the people just called him father. He did not mind this. He should be noted that when he would go to a church to preach, he would not serve. But see, in Greece, the way that it's usually done is when a preacher who's a clergyman, is, is going to preach at that liturgy. He just sits in the corner somewhere in the altar, just sits there quietly, and when his turn comes to preach, then he goes and preaches. He doesn't serve. So the people never really saw him dressed as a bishop, so they actually just forgot that he was a bishop. They actually thought he was just a simple um, uh, priest. That's the practice that they do over there. Anyway, during this time in Evia, he continued to write and publish many of his works. He was finally uh, he finally was able to publish the book he had been compiling from his youth. If those of you who heard last talk remember, he used to com- he used to collect all little sayings, and he goes, "One day I want to publish this." Well, he actually did finally publish it while he was in Evia. He it was called Thesaurus of Religious and Philosophical Sayings. It was 942 pages. Of all those beautiful little sayings he used to write on the tobacco packets when he was in the, in the previous talk. One day a troubled young boy approached the Metropolitan. His head was shaven, his clothes were worn out, and he looked sickly and very distressed. He said, Father, see, Father, I was present when you gave a sermon last Sunday on the topic of shame and disgrace. I was born without a father. The Holy Notarius, in a kind and fatherly manner, said, Come sit down, my child. Let me offer you a sweet. No, thank you, it's late. The boy was reluctant first, but when the Holy One encouraged him, sat down and broke down and cried. Father, I want to... to um, I'll use other words because it's unfortunate as, a, as a, young, a young member today and I don't want to... I want to commit suicide because I cannot take it anymore. I want to drown myself in the sea. Every, everywhere that I go, I'm called the bastard. Because of this, I left school. I now have a job as an apprentice at the boatyards. But the situation is now worse. My mother cries continually. So the, so the saint said, where's your mother? Don't say anything to her or I will commit suicide even sooner. I feel sorry for her. I don't know why she sinned. She says that she was married to a ship's carpenter who left and never came back. He left her young and alone without any money and without any help, so she claims. So the boy wasn't really sure whether that story was true, but he knows that he had no father. Only God knows the truth, he said. She's still my mother and I feel sorry for her. She could have aborted me, but she didn't. I really wish that she had because I cannot take any more the continual gossip and judging. I came to you so that you can ask the Lord to comfort her, help my mother. In this way I will finally be free to end my life Um, without having to worry about her. Throughout the boy's story, he was very distressed and hopeless and could not stop crying. The Holy One was also crying and went up to the boy to console him. Oh, my child, don't you know that the Lord takes special care of whoever does not have a father like you? 
The Pharisees even called the Lord Jesus a bastard, and there are even some Jews today who still do. That's, that's, what, that's the um, propaganda that, that they say, that the reason why there was no father is because, you know, who really cares what they say. From now on, I will take care of you. If anyone dares to call you that name, just come and tell me. I think that you are now feeling better. Please never consider ending your life again. All life is precious and a gift from God. Only he can say when a person's life should end. So much for the euthanasia of people. Whenever you feel despondent, talk to God, and if you like, you can come to me again. If you do this, I can assure you that you will never become so despondent that you'll want to end your life. Here we have such wonderful advice. Look look at the advice he gave. Let's not pass it by and just... Because sometimes we've got to focus, study it carefully. It says... Whenever you feel despondent, which is another word for dis- depressed, basically, talk to God. And if you like, you can come to me again. So the saint is saying that one way of getting rid of these thoughts is through prayer. And then he also says to come to talk to him, which shows that people have a need to speak to someone. If you do this, I can assure you that you will never become so depressed that you want to end your life. The Holy One asked, let me ask you, would you like to travel? The boy in a faint voice said, I have no money. As a father, the saint said, as a father, meaning himself, I will get that for you. I will take care of everything. The saint made this promise, even though he had no money due to his continual giving away to the poor and publications. So great was his faith, he actually made a promise to help him, even though he knew he had no money, because he had faith that God will send the money for this boy. If this is so, then, yes, I would like to travel. You will save me, said the boy. From now on, said the saint, consider me your father. All I want from you is to be patient for a short while, because I will... I have to write to some people that I know and wait for their reply. I want to send you to Cairo in Egypt. You will be staying with friendly people and you'll be able to work for them and study. You'll become educated and later you'll be able to praise the Lord Jesus Christ, your benefactor. So stop crying and come to the church in a few days so that you can confess and repent for the sin of contemplating suicide and then I can read you the prayer of absolution because of your youth and extraordinary circumstances, I will show leniency. Because he can, when people have those type of things, they can actually not commune for a while if they got um, close. But it's the same saying, you know, you're young and it was extraordinary circumstances. I will read you the prayer and um, think. Now, there's a few things here. One, the scientist didn't say words. He gave a solution and actually gave a practical solution to the boy's problem. Didn't just just say, don't worry, you'll be okay, I'll pray for you, goodbye. He actually tried to solve the problem, which is quite impressive. Then we have what people should do when they have these thoughts or when when they've got close to actually doing something like that. So it says, run to the churches, come in a few days to me, because obviously they went at a church, and confess and repent 
for the sin of contemplating suicide and then I'll give you the prayer of forgiveness. Today, unfortunately, and I say this with pain, that we have more trust in doctors, we have more trust in psychiatrists, we have more trust in social workers than what we do of the church. And unfortunately, the priests themselves are sometimes the worst. What does that mean? Some might say, are you saying that people shouldn't go to doctors or shouldn't seek help? No. What I'm saying is that the church has always believed that when you go to a doctor, you go to a priest as well. So the doctor, you go. The doctor is really only God's instrument. And it says in the Bible that God has given the doctors herbs and this many medications to heal people. But at the same time, you go to the church and you get prayers, you receive unction, etc. Now, it, I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss that when a person comes to a priest, not all of us, I mean, I'm just saying, but, but there are a few of them, and says that, he, for example, he's got these thoughts, straight away it's like a psychologist, 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 psychologist. First, the person's there. Read a prayer. Do a maleben. Commemorate the person in the liturgy. My experience tells me that even just one prayer can, can, can get rid of those thoughts. Because a lot of times the thoughts are also demonic. Some of them are psychological from their sufferings etc but but sometimes it's also demonic or together they work with the with the with the disturbances and what the person needs is grace god's grace remember that example that i gave you a while ago of a woman that was dying she was, uh, she was dying and her family was there and the, woman was soul, the woman's soul could not come, could not leave. She was being tormented. And she was convulsing and she was like in a very bad state. And the people present, the, the relatives, decided to do a paraclesis, similar to what we did today, that was to St. Nectarius, they did it to the Mother of God. So they started to sing the paraclesis in the presence of, the, um, of their mother, I think it was. And they started to do the paraclesis. As the paraclesis went on, the, the maleben, you don't need a priest, you can also sing those things without a priest. The best would be with a priest, but um, we just sing all the parts, but we don't sing the priest parts. And um, we don't say the priest parts. And then they sang it, and after a while she began to come, 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 and passed away. What are, what's the, what are we going to call the palliative care? We're going to call the doctors but to, to um, give them a full dosage of um, morphine to, so, that, to, to, so that their lungs can um, stop? What do we do? Okay, we do the spiritual and at the same time we can use the doctors as well. 
But when we just are doing one, we are depriving the person the help of the spiritual, which many times can help. But I'm not saying to do it without, but sometimes it can. I remember an example of someone who was committed into, um, into Parramatta, psychiatric hospital, very bad. They said that he wasn't eating. He was, um, wasn't eating, he was psychotic, and he, uh, they're going to do the electroshock treatment, which is not a very good thing. You know. And um, his brother came to me and said, that's what they're going to do. I, I said to him, it's quite shocking that they're going to do that, and it sounds very, it's just psychotic, it's just, just he's lost reality altogether. And I said, well, what we'll do is, why don't we do an unction? We'll do an unction service, and then you can take the oil um, and give it to him. Because I, I <clears throat> didn't want to go, because sometimes these um, psychiatrists think that um, the clergy will make them worse, so they sometimes don't even let you go. Anyway, I said, you can take the oil. And... Um, because sometimes the people got religious mania. I think he had also some religious mania too, that actually that, that, that young man who was about 18. So we were doing the service, and as we're coming to the end of the unction, as I've said this story before, the phone rang, and it was the boy's father that said that so-and-so, whatever his name was, Jim, let's just say, make up a name, Jim has come to, he's actually become normal and that they don't have to do the electro uh, thing and he also asked to eat some souvlakia and some and some barbecue chicken so therefore that is that now he must have had some treatment later on maybe he took some little bit of, but at least he came out of the worst and together with the doctors etc don't make that mistake doctors are not gods and in point of actual fact, they're very limited. They themselves say that for a suicidal person, if they're gonna want it, if they're gonna do it, they're gonna do it. There's not much they can do. They won't even lock them up a lot of times. They said if they're gonna do it, they're gonna do it. The boy was so moved when he fell and he fell to his that he fell to his knees before the holy nectarius, still crying. He managed between sobs to say, Father, I truly never expected such generosity. You have saved me from my grave. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Christ. Thank you, Christ. May his name be praised. The Holy One understood that the boy's situation was very serious. He found the boy's mother and told her that it would be best for her son, Stephanos, to take a short trip. And so it happened after a couple of months, he went to Egypt and worked for some good people and he studied at the best schools of Egypt. He would never again bear hear that nickname that they made fun of him with and all that. He worked for kind people and studied at the best school that ever said that. Um, St Nectarius, just so that you know, he published an article on suicide in which he discusses the reasons that incline people to commit suicide, the means of preventing suicide and the church's refusal to bury those who have committed suicide. I'd love to get that article. It's probably in Greek. I, I wouldn't be able to read it very well. But um, I hope that they will do that in, um, in English. But obviously there's other spiritual fathers that have written a lot on the topic of that. Take your people to the doctor, even yourself, if you have those, if you have those thoughts, or someone else that you know has those thoughts. Yes, go to the doctor. But 
go to the priest. If the person can, can go to the priest, all that priest has to do a lot of times is just put the, the, um, this, which represents God's grace. So when the priest puts that on and puts it on the head, and that's the priesthood that God's given, the grace flows into, onto the person, and a lot of times they're helped, or at least they get over the worst, and they might need to get a bit more help. But don't deprive someone of that help. After one year in Evia, he received a letter of transfer from the Ministry of Ecclesiastical Affairs. He was being sent as a preacher to another area in Greece. The faithful throughout Evia became upset when they heard the news that they were losing their beloved and holy father. Many of them even broke down and cried. At first he was also upset, but later accepted the transfer as God's will. He knew that there were many more people that were in need of the word of God, in other parts of Greece, in other words. However, the faithful's sorrow was so overwhelming, the people were so overwhelmed, that they complained to the ministry, and a few weeks later the transfer was cancelled. In Holy Nectarius' second year in Evia, the bishop of Evia passed away. The Holy One was asked to conduct the funeral service and to give a sermon. Many at the funeral began to suggest that the Holy Preacher should be chosen as the next bishop. The news spread throughout the island and was even published in the newspaper that they go, he's the, right, he's the one who should become the next bishop of Evia. However, one of the archimandrites of Evia, that's a priest monk, had for some time desired to be the next bishop. Not to save souls, obviously, but he wanted to be the bishop. He was the head of the ecclesiastical school of Halkidam. If all he could think about was to become a bishop, I'm writing this, well, what did he offer his students? Well, did he really care about his students, that, they were, that he was preparing future priests? If his mind was on, I want to become a bishop, because he wants to... Uh, did he want to become a bishop because... He wanted to serve the church as a bishop. There's nothing wrong with that. Or do you want to become a bishop for glory? Well, let's have a look. These positions are usually stepping stones for these people that want to get you know, higher up. He began writing articles in the newspaper indirectly against the Holy Nectarius, at first anonymously, but later, because the people demanded, he began signing his name. He wrote... In, these, in the newspaper, he wrote, not mentioned in the saint's name, by the way, he wrote that the holy synods no longer allow the laity to choose a bishop. So they said people, he's saying, people have no right to say who they want as bishop. It's the synods which, 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 which um, choose. He also wrote that a bishop who has deserted his church is not allowed to become a bishop of another church. In other words, saying that the saint deserted his church, but he didn't desert his church, he was thrown out. So he manipulated the truth. This hurt the Holy One very much because he did not desert his church. He was forced to leave. But see how he was twisting the truth. Some people suggested to the saint, why don't you write a response in the newspaper? Like, why don't you answer what this person's saying? But the saint decided against this because this would cause scandals for the patriarch of Alexandria. If he writes the truth of what happened, then people will, more people will know that Sophronios, the patriarch, what he did was bad and etc. He was even heard to have said that it doesn't matter if he doesn't become bishop, meaning himself. The saint, the saint said, it doesn't matter about me if I don't become bishop. 
and that the Archimandrite would be suitable for the position since he's well educated. So he was willing to bow down and say, oh, let him take it. Even though the Archimandrite was one of the three nominated by the Synod, three people were nominated, they usually, when, when someone's going to be, when they have to choose a new bishop, they nominate three people. And then out of those three, they pick one. He was one of them. But the poor thing, he didn't get it. They chose someone else. On August the 19th, 1893, the Holy Nectarius received a letter, another letter now, from the Ministry of Ecclesiastical Affairs, this time appointing him as preacher in an area west of Athens, somewhere there. Once news of his transfer spread throughout Evia, the faithful were once again hurt and saddened. On the day of his departure, many of the faithful came to say goodbye. They brought flowers to give to him. Some people shouted, we wish that we, wish that we could have you here, the people were saying. And others were saying, what's going to happen to us? And some said, please don't forget us. And all those present kissed his hand. Before his departure, he received a number of letters from the faithful around the island that he helped. One of the letters was from the, young, from the youth of Karistos expressing their gratefulness for his spiritual guidance. It was about 100 people that signed that one. Another letter was from the mayor of Kimi. That's another area there. That was his base. That's where the saint used to live and work from there and go around the island. In this letter, the mayor expressed on behalf of his area their sorrow at the Holy One's departure and their gratefulness for his sermons, writings and help over the two and a half years. They also asked that he never cease praying for them all. So he st that he was there on this island for two and a half years. So after serving as a preacher in Evia for two and a half years, he left for his new appointment. See, we have a rose. And as you know, roses are beautiful. And what makes them grow, makes them beautiful is what? Manure. So we get manure. It can be different types of manure. There's, there's sheep manure, there's cow manure, there's chicken manure. And we all know what manure is. So they put this manure around the rose and the rose grows. St. Nectarius is like a rose, you see. He's a rose. The more the manure around him, the more that they had this manure that was coming around him, the more he grew and he blossomed. The manure being the, the, the clergy there that were, that were putting him down. See? So they thought that they were going to get rid of him, but they didn't. They just made him greater, as we'll see as time goes on. He, when he arrived at his new appointment, he was surprised to find that the majority of the faithful were women and children who had lost their husbands, fathers and sons to the sea. This was a sea, a sea coast area, and the men there worked on the boats. And... As you know, when you work in the sea, a lot of them die. So um, uh, when he went there, there was hardly no men. All it was was all these widows and mothers and children without men. He served as a preacher there with the same effectiveness and fruitfulness that he had served with at Evia. While he was there, he fell very ill with the flu. He lay in bed for three weeks. During, the sickness, during this sickness, the mother of God appeared to him in a dream. She told him that the angels were preparing to take him from this life. In other words, this flu, this sickness that he had, 
was unto death. In other words, that, as we know, to even today, that sometimes certain flus can kill people. However, Christ decided that he should remain in this life. She also said, quote, You shall continue on the sorrowful path, that of patience and waiting. Cease fearing, keep struggling, the Lord will stand by you. End quote. After recovering from his illness, he went on a preaching tour. Now, there's a miracle of a, this is like a vision. What, and as I said before, what came out of this vision? Did, did, it, did it change any dogmas of the church, like in the Roman Catholic Church? Like Immaculate Conception when supposedly Bernadette saw the mother of God? No. It, and point of actual fact, I don't think even anyone hardly knew about it, if, if, if anyone. See, the saints kept their spiritual experiences secret. How do we know when something's a spiritual experience, a true one, and something's false? Well, the ones that are false, a lot of times people go and spread it. I saw this, I, I'm special. While the holy experiences are humble and people don't go and spread things like the other miracles that we heard that the saint did in the previous talk. And I think... Uh, Having only served for a few months at this new area that he went, he received another letter from the Ministry of Ecclesiastical Affairs, this time appointing him as director of the Rosarius Ecclesiastical School in Athens. This school was famous for preparing young men for the priesthood and other services to the church. So he was going to become the head of this ecclesiastical school, which is a famous school. On the day of his departure, all the faithful solemnly accompanied the holy nectarius to the boat, accompanied, the holy nectarius to the boat. The children also walked alongside his horse-drawn carriage. The girls were carrying flowers and the boys were carrying little flags. They were indebted to him because through his preaching they were brought closer to God. In other words, they also were spiritually reborn. And that's where we'll end now and we'll have the break. Okay, just the um, our book club. Now, this is probably the most detailed life of, um, of St. Nectarius. And um, it's called, for those who are we're here in the talk, St. Nectarius, the Saint of Our Century by Sotos Krondropoulos. This is the, I think they say it's the most detailed, excellent, goes much more detail than what I'm saying tonight, but um, wonderful book, and we only have two left of them, whoever's interested. And then we have last week's talk, which is part one, and that's made, been made ready. Then we have another good, another nice life, Modern Orthodox Saint Series, Saint Nectarius of Ergina, by um, Constantine Carvanos. And this is produced by the Institute for Byzantine and Modern Greek Studies, uh, Belmont, Massachusetts, I think, in the USA. Excellent book as well. Um, not, not the same as the other. The other one's more detailed. This is a little bit different. And we also have our own that we've produced, Holy Hierarchic Tales for the Polis, which is volume two of Our Lives of Saints. So, 
The question now comes, why did the Ministry of Ictisaskal Affairs appoint Metropolitan Nectarius to this important position, considering that at first they were reluctant to even give him a lesser position as a preacher? They obviously were influenced by the rumours that were circulating and the letters that were sent to them, slandering him as immoral and disobedient. I mean, we know that a lot of that was fixed up, but these letters still came and a lot of people still believe it. As we remember, it was the influential man from Egypt, Mr. Malas, who forced the minister to give the, body, the Holy One a position as preacher. But even after this, the clergy from Alexandria continued their attempts to slander him when they found out that the ministry was planning to appoint him as a director of the Rosaris Ecclesiastical School, they tried to obstruct his appointment. So this is now one year that he was in Athens, two and a half years plus half a year, makes it four years since he had left and they still hadn't stopped. I remember reading a book that he said in one, one part, it might have been that book, I'm not sure, it said there, um, like, why are they doing this? It was expressing his pain. Like, why are they continuing to do this? Aren't they satisfied that I've got nothing left, really, in a, in a way? From the fact that he was still appointed, it can be seen that the Ministry of Ecclesiastical Affairs had to some extent acknowledged that, this, that St Nectarius was a learned man who was suitable for this position. Apart from this, and probably the main reason, Archbishop Yeramanos and other supporters of the Holy Nectarius, both um, bishops and lay people, influenced his appointment. So now let's see what is this school that he, that he was going to. The Rosarius School was famous for preparing young men for the priesthood and for other services to the church. The school was established by two rich brothers, uh, George and Manthos Rosaris, and hence why they call the school Rosarius School. They had become rich in Russia. They went, they went to Russia. They, had some, they did some business over there. And from that, they became rich. So they wanted to... They built this school uh, so as to um, produce educated clergy, in other words. It consisted of, a, of, a, of, of the school, a dormitory, because students also lived there, a chapel, which was dedicated to St George, a courtyard and gardens with trees. The students were taught both religious and secular. They also did maths and science, etc., but also religious subjects, theological subjects. Many in the area referred to the school as the priest school. They said, oh, that's, that, that, that school's the priest school, that's where they make priests. The school was governed by a committee of 10 people, which was under the authority of the Ministry of, of Ecclesiastical Affairs. Every three years from this committee of 10, they would pick three trustees, um, who would have a full authority in all decision-making. So three of the ten had the power to run the school, and that was every three years. Anyway, we'll see about them later. The Rosarius School was in a state of disorder at the time of the Holy One's appointment as director. The administration was appalling and ineffective. As a result of this, the standard of the students' discipline, ecclesiastical life, academic achievements were all low. So it wasn't a very good school. Furthermore, there existed different attitudes among the trustees, those who were governing the schools. Some of them wanted to reform the school so that it would be in step with the modern world. They wanted to change the school's curriculum, in other words, the subjects, from being based on orthodox tradition to one which was more in line with Europe. 
heterodox theology, in other words, rationalism, intellectualism, and science. Why? Remember, this is what happened in Russia as well. A lot of the theological schools in Russia was influenced from the, uh, a lot by the West. And in, in the theological school of Kiev, which is in Ukraine, they even had Latin. They were actually, a lot of their subjects in Latin. So that's how much they were influenced. So why were these people influenced? So let's have a look. The beginning of the century, the 20th century, remember that the saint was there in 1890, 1894, so the beginning of, around that time, at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, um, was a time of great turmoil for Greece and the threat to her orthodoxy. Students out of the universities of Europe with their intellectualism, were bringing heterodox ideas to traditional Greece. They were bringing all these heretical views from Europe and other things into Greece, which was an orthodox country. European publications were flooding Greece and having a strong influence on many. These foreign influences corrupted traditional orthodox values in Greece. So because of this, people were losing their orthodoxy. These influences also greatly affected the priests who were steadily becoming more secular, more worldly. The priesthood had become, in fact, nothing more than a routine vocation, like a job, with many um, authoritarians, dictators, like they just... It wasn't proper as priests... The clergy and the church were ridiculed and mocked by the powerful, the educated and even the simple people. Similar to Russia before the revolution, the religion was like a bit of a joke. People didn't take much notice of it. They, they used to make fun of the priests, etc., etc. And then when, well, we know what happened up there. So, unfortunately, in Russia, the church had become extremely worldly. Professional, like it was professional deacons, that was see, how they, they, you know, chanters and all these type of things. Everything had become uh, worldly, and it was only pockets, as I said before, of like Optina and a few other places of centres that were um, promoting proper orthodox life. The rest was all had lost themselves, and that's what was happening in Greece. All this greatly influenced the trustees of, and the staff of the school. The negativity towards orthodoxy can be seen in their comments. These are some of the things that they would say. Times have changed. That's a, people will say that. In the 20th century, maths and science will prevail over religion. That's what they were saying. This is the people that were running the school for priests. Anyway, so they said, in the 20th century, maths and science will prevail over religion and that superstition and religion will become a distant memory. They'll all be wiped off. It will just be a memory in history. Maths and science will be more important. Um, and that's like today. It's like today we have even in the church people that say psychology is the answer. Psychology is the answer. So we have so many priests today that are all studying psychology and preaching psychology. Psychology. 
Others believe today that ecumenism is the answer, that you know, when all the religions join together, then we'll have a peaceful, beautiful life in the world. There'll be no problems. Others think that, you know, that people have to be happy. Materialism. All these things. And anyway, Before the Holy Nectarius arrived at the school, there was divided opinion amongst the trustees and the staffs regarding his character. Now we come to what did they think about the saint before he came to the school? Some believed that he had left Egypt because of moral reasons. Obviously, some believed that it was true of, why, of what, what was going around. While others said that this was a slander of some in the Alexandrian Patriarchate. Others say, no, it's not true. It's slanders. It's not true. He's really, he's good. Also, some had heard that he was very humble, pious and ascetical. There was, there was even doubt that he would be able to deal with the new generation because it has been... As, so, as they said, enlightened. They were saying, oh, today the young, they've been enlightened. They're not going to listen about religion and they're not going to listen to an old priest or something like that. Um, they're not going to accept easily. So we have to go with the times. Isn't what they say now? We have to go with the times in the church, make the church modern, make the church in step with the time, make the priests the same and everything like that. So, you know, it's like, you, you, some priests have actually said, I, one priest actually said to me, you can't preach orthodoxy to people because they're not going to accept it and, then, and they're not going to like you. I said, so you're, you're here for popularity. The Holy Nectarius commenced working as director of the school on the 8th of March, 1894, and he was approximately 48 years old at the time. He was extremely grateful for this position for he now had the opportunity to instruct and prepare future priests for the whole of Greece. So look at God's providence. Yes, he lost his position as bishop in Egypt, and he also wasn't given a diocese in Greece, but God wanted him to be the head of this ecclesiastical school. And when you look at it, his influence would be far greater here than what it would have been even as a bishop perhaps because here he's the one that's instructing the future priests. When he arrived at the school, the Holy Nectarius was greeted by the school's trustees, secretaries, teachers, etc. They said to him, you know, would you like to go to your room now? He said no. He wanted to go to the school chapel of St. George. He entered the altar and venerated, as is the custom, the altar table. When a priest enters, he's supposed to kiss the altar first. After this, he knelt with tears. He prayed to Christ, thanking him and asking him for help in his new position. Some students and others present in the chapel were amazed when they saw this. They saw, they saw, they're saying, look, he's, he's crying while he's praying. They didn't know that. They had never seen that before because, as I said, spirituality was very low in Greece. On the following day, in the assembly hall... After the morning prayer, he was introduced to the students for the first time as their new dean. There was approximately 140 young men, boys, dressed in cassocks, all in black, as they, you know, that's what they wore, even though they weren't priests, but, they, but that's, as students they wore that, many of whom were examining the Holy One to determine whether the new dean would be strict or not, like typical schools, like I remember when I used to go to a new school, a new class, the, the kids would be eyeing you out to see, you know, is he strict, is he soft, can we going to get away with things, etc. When a new priest comes, people eye him out to see what's he going to be, he's going to be like our old priest, he's going to be new, different, new bishop comes, it's all it's the same. So here the kids were looking and to see 
wonder what he's going to be. My ch then he started a speech. My, my children, I'm very happy to be with you. It is with the fear of God that I'm accepting this great holy work of supervising your education, and I promise to do everything humanly possible to assist your spiritual growth and progress. I'm going to do in some parts of the talk. My children, in each one of you exists a future priest, an important part of the history and future life of our suffering country. Be honoured to wear your cassocks, he was saying, because he knew that in many countries around the world, Western countries where there was Orthodox priests, they had taken off the black and were wearing suits and other things. And he, that says, be proud to wear your cassocks. That's the black, the, the, the rasa. This calling is not merely a joy, he said, but also a mission which begins on earth and continues into heaven. In the beginning, while he was saying all this, some of them were laughing a bit and were kind of whispering and making noises. My children, I also want you to be proud of our orthodox faith. We can consider orthodoxy as our treasure, as our priceless pearl. Orthodoxy is also our light that guides us. If we were ever to lose this treasure, this light, then we'd be scattered to the ends of the earth like dust ceasing to exist as people and as a nation. See what the saint felt about the orthodox faith. So we go on. So, my children, let us create a blessed brotherhood, like the school, all together. I promise that I will stand by your side always as a spiritual father, as a father. Also, I notice that some of you are beardless. Be not swayed, be not, in other words, influenced by the Europeans. We Greek Orthodox have our own traditions dating back to the Holy Apostles and the early church fathers. I ask that you follow their manly examples. Do it for the struggles and hardships they endured. So he was telling the boys there, the young boys, the men, to have beards. Which later on he got in trouble for because some of the trustees went against him and said, how dare you and this and that. So at the beginning of the speech, as I said before, many of the students were making noises and laughing, but at the, as the speech went on, they became quiet and attentive when their new dean finished speaking, they applauded loudly. So, they, the, the, the children, the, the, the youth there, already took to him well after they heard his talk. Why? Because his talk was full of grace. The Holy One was very determined to inspire the love of orthodoxy in his students. He also wanted to put the school in order. He did not do this with, strict, with a strict and authoritarian approach, but a peaceful and loving manner. He, and we'll see later on how he acted with the students when they were naughty. It is good for us to see how the Holy Nectarius achieved this. His day began with attending the service of matins. Every morning he went to the prayers in the chapel. After this, he worked a little in the garden. He also attended every Vesper service in the afternoon. But this is interesting because a lot of academics, a lot of Orthodox that have studied, they don't like services. That to them it's just studying and learning like the Westerners. But not, they're not united with the services of the church. St. Nikolai was a great academic, St. Nikolai of Serbia. So was St. Eustin and many others. But they also were men of prayer. St. Eustin Popovich, for example, served liturgy every day. Every day he served liturgy 
and he would write all his volumes that he wrote, all the great works that he produced, they called him the greatest dogmatic theologian of the 20th century. All that came from his participation in the daily liturgy. These new academics, a lot of these academics, they don't, they don't even, a lot of them don't even go to church. Church to them is the last thing. To them it's studies and doctorates and masters and all these type of things. The university life. He taught pastoral theology and other subjects to the higher grades. He also developed many courses of study for which he wrote numerous books. So he even made his own courses up as well there. The students found in their holy dean a teacher with a deep knowledge of the holy scriptures, the holy fathers and even secular learning. He was, as I said before, well educated. But at the same time spiritual. He continually preached in the school chapel sermons that were filled with power, wisdom and love. When listening to his sermons, the students were uplifted and very moved. He also confessed the students, healing their souls as an experienced physician. So he wrote, he preached, he confessed the students and as we'll see later on, other people used to come to him from the city. St Nectarius's administrative and teaching responsibilities did not prevent him from living an ascetical life. Among his many duties, he spent much time in prayer, fasting and studying the Holy Scriptures and the Holy Fathers and writing many articles and books for all Orthodox Christians. Not just he wrote books for the students, but he also kept on writing books, which we'll talk about in another talk, which were spread throughout the Orthodox, through Orthodox Greece and later on the world. As mentioned earlier, the Holy One has direct exercised his authority with great kindness and consideration. Here's an example. Once, the Holy Dean was informed, that's the Dean means by principle, the Holy, once the Holy Dean was informed that some students had an argument which led to a fist fight. So some two boys were fighting, or three, I'm not sure, and they were actually hitting each other. When they stood before him in his office, accusing one another, he was saddened and tears fell from his eyes. After hearing the boys' explanations, the Holy Dean said, Well, all these things that you boys have done give me no alternative but to punish myself. See, they wouldn't repent. They kept on blaming each other. So he said, I'm going to punish myself. They were stunned and one of the boys, not sure that he heard properly, questioned the Dean, Did you say yourself? Yes, indeed, I will, pe I will penance myself by abstaining from food for three days during which time I will pray about this problem. You have truly saddened me, my children, because you are future priests. Go now and may God forgive you and guide you and please let me know by lunchtime today that you all have made up with each other. This is important as well for parents. When they see their children fighting, they don't actually make attempts to reconcile the kids, their, their, their children. Then they wonder why when they, when they get older they hate each other. And they don't pray for their children to have love for each other. Oh, they're only children, they grow up, but they don't. That's, that's just something when they fight continually, a lot of times this develops. And I noticed that in the majority of siblings, in, you know, like they, all, they all hate each other, they're all jealous, they all have dislike for each other, and um, that's not good, and that comes from the parenting. And also, if the mother and father, when they fight, don't reconcile, well, and there's no example, 
then they're not going to, then the children have never seen an example of reconciling. I've noticed that people who find it hard to reconcile with others that they've had a fight with, when you ask them questions, you usually find out that they never saw their parents ever make up. It was very rare, if at all. And those people, never having seen an example, at the end find it extremely difficult to say sorry, to admit that they're wrong, etc., because they never saw their parents do it. So a lot of these things come from, the, from parenting. So we have the example of the saint. The saint had an important thing. He just didn't say, OK, you made up, shake hands, goodbye. He actually said, he actually saw they weren't repentant. He saw that there was something wrong and he did a fast and prayed for them, which is what parents have to do for their children. They need to pray and fast, as the Orthodox Church teaches, and pray and fast for the well-being of their children, for their development, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, everything. Not just like today when people go to the church and do their cross wrong usually and say, please help my child to become a doctor or go to university or something like that, you know, to get um, um, a good job, plenty of money. No, no. If, they've, if, if they haven't learned to ask forgiveness, if they haven't learned spiritual life, if they haven't learned humility, etc., what's the point in them becoming all these things? At the end of the day, it's a waste of time, isn't it? So, may you, yes, go now and may God forgive you and guide you and please let me know by lunchtime today that you all have made up with each other. If not, I will punish myself for a longer time. The boys were speechless and departed from the office of the, of the Holy Dean, embarrassed and full of fear. They were so upset they did not even eat their lunch that day. They went to their rooms and cried. News circulated quickly throughout the school how, how the dean was suffering and punishing himself on behalf of the mistakes of others. This incident was all that the students could talk about. They were amazed and their respect for their dean deepened. During his three days fast, he prayed for the whole school and behold the miracle. The students began to change significantly both in their behaviour and in their studies. See what prayer does? Now, when people come to me and say, I want to get married, I said, do you know how to pray? No. Well, don't get married. Because marriage is an arena, as we read, as we said in the talks on marriage, talks 12, 13, an arena. You know, like, the, like you go in an arena and you fight or whatever you do, then and things like that, it's an arena. It's a struggle. And you don't, when you go into an, an arena to fight or if you're going to go to the Olympic Games or you're going to whatever, you're not going to go, say, for example, someone comes along and says, I'm going to go into shot put. Is that what you say, shot put? So they get the ball to, to, play, to do shot put. But they weigh 45 kilos because they're anorexic. So they're going to do shot put. So the thing is, what I'm trying to say there is that's what happens when people try to go into marriage not being spiritually strong. Because to be able to keep a marriage, one has to be spiritually strong, mentally well to, to a large extent, because the pressure of marriage, the upbringing of children is so great that a lot of times people have breakdowns and the whole thing becomes a disaster. 
Actually, I think I've even read that the church was not very, didn't like people that had serious mental issues to get married because the church fathers were scared that, they, that those people would pass their, their problems to their children. But today it seems it doesn't matter. And that's why as soon as they have a baby, a lot of times, any pressure, any problems, it's like the whole thing collapses. So you have to be strong, spiritually strong to endure today, um, especially today when there's so many temptations. So we see the example of St. Nectarius where, that's what I'm trying to say for the parents, they have to know how to pray even for their children, to pray for their spouses. I had an example where one one uh, one man's wife started to go off a bit, so the man had to pray for the wife. Another example I had where the wife had to pray for the husband because the husband started to lose himself. So you see, uh, um, that's why you get married, because you have the two people, as they say, well, I, I want to be saved. I'm going to use the marriage as a way to, save, to, to be saved. And together with my wife, husband, we will work together. One picks the other one up to, to, to work towards salvation. If the person doesn't know how to pray for their spouses, for their children, for problems, how are they going to endure? So we have that example here of the saint. How did he solve the problem? Through prayer and fasting. And they changed. And I've seen many miracles, many miracles, where a woman was said that she was just about ready to, um, to leave her husband because he was... I don't know, a gambler, I don't know what he was, something like that. It was very bad, spending the money, just, it was a whole disaster. And, I, and she goes, I'm going to leave him. I said, no, 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 pray. Learn, you have to pray. This is where you're going to learn to pray. Like I said last week, Elder Haralambos from Manatha said that through prayer, through these afflictions, you will learn to become holy. You'll learn to pray. I said, pray, and what happened? The husband changed and stopped. It was like um, that was a miracle. Plus, obviously, she got prayers from different monasteries. And um, that's what prayer does. Nothing that a psychologist could have done and nothing that, uh, that at that time. The, the thing was so, was so vulnerable. It was ready, ready to break. And then the miracle happened. So, new circus... Uh, during his three-day fast, he prayed for the whole school, and behold the miracle, the students started changing. One can say that the students developed a deep respect and honour for him and love for their ascetical dean grew in them. They looked at him as a loving father. News began to spread throughout Athens and Piraeus, which is another big city in Athens there, in Greece, close to Athens, about the inspired sermons of the new director of the Rosarius Ecclesiastical School. So young and old, rich and poor, educated and educated, people came from everywhere to hear the sermons that he gave at the school's Sunday liturgies and all-night vigils. So he would obviously do the service there at the school because the boys had to go to the Sunday and then they would because they had a chapel there and people would come to that liturgy there. Because, of the, because the chapel was not large enough to hold the many people, the school decided to issue tickets for Sunday liturgies because it was just too many people. So every Friday afternoon, long lines formed outside the school gates with the faithful hoping to receive a ticket to be able to attend the Sunday liturgy of St Nectarius so they can hear him preach as well. 
Apart from the preaching of the school chapel, he was often invited to preach at different churches around Athens and the nearby city of Perez. Many would follow just to hear him preach. So whatever church he went to, people would follow, would, would, would follow him. Why such enthusiasm from people to hear the Holy One preach? Obviously, he, uh, this was a holy person, but wh why was there so much that much? I mean, don't they have other preachers there? So let's have a look. In the book that I just uh, told you, this book here, Modern Orthodox Saints, Volume 7, the Saint Nectarius of Aginam, by Constantine Cavanos, he himself wrote, which I quoted here, he said, during this time, during the time that Saint Nectarius was in Athens, preaching was rarely heard in the churches of Greece. Therefore, to hear someone preach was out of the ordinary, and for this reason the people listened with eagerness. St. Nectarius' sermons captivated the faithful. They were very much moved by his simplicity, honesty, goodness, humility, and his extensive knowledge of the scriptures and the Holy Fathers. When there are no when there's when preaching is not happening in the churches, inspiring preaching, that's a sign that the church is not in a good state. Preaching is extremely important. Some priests said, no, no, that's not as long as you go to services, as long as you pray, that's enough. No, that's not correct. Preaching is what the apostles did. And they spread off Christianity throughout the world. His interest in the, uh, in the people of Athens and Paris was sincere and great. His main aim was, through his sermons, to awaken these people spiritually and to instruct them in the true faith and to, pro to promote their inner development. So what was his purpose? Well, why did he preach? To show off. Did he preach so people could look up to him? Did he preach so people can say, oh, great? No, he preached to save souls. If the preaching is not done for that purpose, then it's not going to have much of an effect. One of those who wrote his, his life, Archimandrite Titus, later on became a bishop, he wrote the following, which is, uh, uh, this one was very moving because it connects with what I said last talk, where I said that St. Nectarius was very much inspired by St. Cosmas of Aetolia. St. Cosmas preached all around Greece, different areas where, there was, where, the, where the Greeks were under the Turks, and a lot of the Greeks were becoming Muslim because it was hard to endure being under them. When you became Muslim, you had more rights. And he was going around and preaching, and he had a big effect. Listen to this. He writes, It is no exaggeration to say that the strengthening of the religious feeling of the people in Greece during the last decade of the 19th century, in other words, the 1890s, and the first decade of the 20th century, in other words, the 1910, uh, you know, that, that year, that, that, that decade there, the first one, was due to a great extent to the inspired and full of deep faith sermons of St. Nectarius. Through his sermons, unbelievers and enemies of the Christian faith were transformed into fervent champions of orthodoxy, slanderers and, and accusers were diffused, in other words, they stopped the greedy and uncharitable became generous to the poor. 
he succeeded in doing for his Christian brethren through his preaching what St. Cosmas Etolos had done for his Christian brethren more than a century earlier. They say that St. Cosmas and others like him, but St. Cosmas, remember what I said, equal to the apostles, that he saved Greece from becoming Muslim. That's, the, that's how much of an effect he had on, 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 on Greece. And Saint Nectarius had a similar effect to the Greek people who were living in ignorance of their orthodoxy because the priests at the time had become quite worldly and the word of God was not being preached. People were not hearing the truth. People were not being preached Christ and salvation. And that's the effect that St. Nectarius had. So what St. Cosmas did a hundred years earlier, St. Nectarius was doing now. Under St. Nectarius' direction, the school began to improve considerably. The students of Zerarius had, of Rosarius had changed with time. Their attitude and character showed that they were heading in the right spiritual direction. Therefore, the spiritual and academic reputation of the school grew rapidly. It truly became a place for preparing students for service in the church. It became known. It started to become known as that school that was like in a mess. See, like it's the same thing today. You go to schools, you've got a good principal, you get good results. When you've got some dilapidated jalopy there that doesn't do his job and is an idiot, and then after that, the school falls apart. It's the same, it's the same thing, isn't it? The Holy Nectarius, in his spare time, continued to write many articles and books. He would often write articles for a newspaper that was founded by Archbishop Yermanos of Athens. So Archbishop Yermanos had a newspaper, a spiritual one, a church one, and... Uh, St. Nectarius would write articles for that newspaper and that pleased the Archbishop. He liked that. Um, so the Archbishop obviously was favourable towards him, as I said earlier, and that's why he would let him write articles in his, in his newspaper. His books were becoming more and more popular, the books that he was writing. For example, he wrote a book called Sacred Catechism, which was awarded honours from the Theological School of the University of Oxford, England. In general, his writings were considered great theological works of a standard rarely seen. That's how great his works like his works were like the ancient fathers. The school administration and staff were pleased with the newly found popularity and glory of their school. They liked that, the fact that their school had become now more known. Even so, they did not stop being annoyed with the Holy One and some outright disliked him. So even though the school had improved, they still didn't like him. They would often speak rudely to him, make negative comments to his face, and gossip behind his back. This is some of the staff and the trustees. Some of the trustees were good, by the way. For example, when the Holy Nectarius would speak to the students, they would whisper sarcastic comments such as typical priest speech. Some comments were, that, well, I, I wrote some comments down. This is what things they used to say, either to him or behind his back. That he's a religious fanatic, that he is stuck in the Middle Ages, that he's a typical backward monk, that he doesn't care about politics because he didn't really follow. He used to read the newspapers a little bit, but he didn't really follow it in an obsessive way like they did. That he rarely reads newspapers, that he is a fallen bishop. So they went back to the old... The old um, 
accusations that he, had, that he was a fallen bishop, that he is not uh, the right person to be the dean of the school, that he all he cares about is preparing young men for the priesthood. Well, sorry, but isn't that what the school's about? But anyway, he's awkward. He's backward because he doesn't follow the progress of maths and science. Right? So that's it. So you prepare priests, you prepare priests by teaching them maths and science. So maybe we can do some quadratic equations together later on. It would be good to mention here that the trustees would often oppose some of his recommendations. For example, they refused to allow him to introduce agriculture as a subject. He had an idea. He said, why don't we introduce agriculture as a subject? Because a lot of these future priests will be, go to villages and then they will be able to teach the villagers that they, they, they sort of like help the people there of some agricultural techniques that will help them, these poor people that were illiterate. A lot of the people in Greece, like my grandmother, for example, um, she was probably born, um, she would have been born around that time. She was completely illiterate. And a lot of, a lot of um, even the, you know, someone near, near where, I, where I used to live when I was young, um, she can't read or write at all. So a lot of people were, were um, quite illiterate. And um, the saint thought to himself, well, why don't we do that? Anyway, the trustees knocked it down, said no. Um, they were hostile towards him because he was encouraging the students to have beads and to lead an ascetical life. They didn't like the fact that he was teaching them to pray and to fast and things like that. Now, all of this shows how secular and how unspiritual these people were. One, of, one could ask, the question now comes, why were they against him when they saw the change to the school? People coming from everywhere to hear him preach. The fact that his articles and books were becoming recognised and great theological works. The school was becoming popular. They liked that. But then they said that he's a fanatic, that he's this, that he's that. All those things that he said. Well, why would that happen? Now, and I have my own answer for that. It's called spiritual schizophrenia. Since they, and, I, and I remember when I was preparing for this talk and we were doing the Sunday of the blind man, which was a few weeks ago, I don't know, about three, four weeks ago, the Sunday of the blind man, and I, I love reading this every year, this part. Remember the blind man? He was born blind. He, was, he actually born with no eyes. And he, then he said, Christ said to him, go, and he, picked, no, he spat, picked up some, some sand, mixed it up, and then he um, rubbed his eyes and told him to go and wash in the pool there, etc. And then the Pharisees were saying, and how'd you get your eyes and how'd you do it and how'd you do this and how'd you do that? You know, they were like crazy. They couldn't understand what happened. So in the, in the Traparia there, in the service, it says, since they could not endure to hear his words and to see his zeal, that means the, the, the blind man's, they couldn't endure to hear the blind man. Because the blind man was saying, what? I don't understand. Where has it ever been heard that a man born with no eyes had received eyes? That's never, that was never heard. And then they said, you were born in sins and you're teaching us. Remember that? So since they could not endure to hear his words and to see his zeal, the wretched scribes in their malice had expelled him from the synagogue for the fearful blindness which possessed their souls, surpassed that which once possessed his eyes. In other words, the blindness of the Pharisees was far greater 
than the blindness that the blind man used to have. So the physical blindness was less than the spiritual blindness of them. Because, and look, look, it says they could not, they couldn't, they didn't want to hear, they, they, their malice, their jealousy, their hate. As mentioned, even though the school had improved significantly under the administration of the Holy Metropolitan Nectarius, malicious gossips and rumours were still continue, well, were continuing to be circulated around Athens regarding his dismissal from Egypt. They kept on going back to that. Apart from this, he was being criticised by clergy regarding his running of the school. So there was, there was those rumours going around that he was dismissed, that he's immoral, that he was disobedient. And then there was clergy just in, the, in, the, in Athens, whatever, that was saying that he's um, not running the school properly. He already knew that some members of the school administration and staff were negative towards him, but he did not know that this was on a larger scale. He didn't know it was still going on and it was spreading around. To make things worse, he was informed by a friend that the Minister of Foreign Affairs in Greece had made inquiries about him to the Greek ambassador in Egypt around the time of his appointment. Um, so a lot of ambassadors, I'm just so you won't get confused. So we've got the Minister of Foreign Affairs in Greece. That's the minister that deals with anything to do with overseas. He wrote to the Greek ambassador in Egypt. The Greek ambassador is the representative of Greece in Egypt. So when Greece has a problem with Egypt or anything to do with Egypt, the, they contact the Greek ambassador, like there's an American ambassador here. So anything to do with America, you go to them, the consulate, whatever it's called. Is that what it's called? I think so. So you've got, you got here, we've got all those consulates. And the, so the Minister of Foreign Affairs writes to this man, this ambassador in Egypt. In reply to this inquiry, the ambassador sent a confidential letter to the Minister of Religious, Religion and Education regarding Metropolitan Nectarius, the former bishop. Let's see what the ambassador wrote, the, uh, the, the Greek ambassador of Egypt, about St Nectarius, which was then sent to the people that gave St Nectarius the job to the Minister of Religion and Education. Mr Minister, at the request of the Honourable Foreign Minister, I have the honour to send you information regarding His Eminence, the former bishop from Egypt. He was a monk at the monastery in Chios where he met Mr John Horamis, who, took, who then took, sponsored, him, who sponsored him warmly and recommended him to His Holiness, the Patriarch of Alexandria, Sophronios. Together, the two men paid for His Eminence's religious studies in Athens where he received the theological diploma. That's not really correct because the Sophronios didn't pay anything. He got a scholarship, if you remember. But anyway, maybe that's what they were saying, that they, that they paid. It was just a lie. After his studies, he returned here to Egypt, where the patriarch ordained him Archimandrite and made him a preacher and secretary of the patriarchate. While in these positions, he proved to be truly zealous in carrying out his duties and lived a truly ascetical life. After a while, he was sent to Cairo and later became Metropolitan of Pentapolis, at first, the patriarch was very pleased with him because he proved to be resourceful and effective. Later on, however, he began to displease the patriarch by showing the desire to act without restraint and independently. So he's saying that the patriarch was displeased with the saint because he was being disobedient, he was acting of his own, independent, which of course we know is a lie. 
the patriarch thought that this independent action was rebellious and should be punished, and that is why His Holiness, the Patriarch throughout, thought it best that the Metropolitan Nectaris be expelled from Egypt. Patriarchal sources state that the expulsion, removal, in other words, of the Metropolitan Patabolus from Egypt was further aggravated due to moral reasons. The saint had this letter, so he was reading this. So stab, 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 see? So he's actually reading that these, that these people are writing to each other and saying that he was, he was thrown out of Egypt because of immoral reasons and disobedience. However, my duty requires me to also inform you that according to other equally trustworthy sources, the Metropolitan was a victim of conspiracy and slander. Finally, I have the honour to report to you that the Metropolitan of Pentapolis was considered to be a faultless clergyman who was both energetic and effective even by those within the patriarchate. Now, one can say this sounds like schizophrenic as well, but because you've got that he's saying that, and, that, and at the end goes, finally, I've done to report that he was faultless. What I think happened, this is my own, my own interpretation, if I, can, if I can say it, was that these, it's all political. So this person, this ambassador, if he goes against the patriarchate, then they're going to go against him, and this is all political stupidity. So what he did was he said, OK, this is one side of the story, this is another side of the story, and finally, I want to tell you that he's faultless. So, in other words, the Greek ambassador knew the truth. This letter, the room, this, this letter and the rumours and the constant complaints and criticisms of some clergymen, committee members and staff of the school regarding his running of the school forced the Minister of Religion and Education to re-examine the metropolitan situation. The two specific matters he wanted to review were, one, that he had been expelled from the Patriarchate of Alexandria from, for immorality and disobedience, so he wanted to look at that, and two, that his appointment to Rosarius was invalid because he was not a Greek citizen. So obviously, even though the Greek ambassador wrote to this person from the um, minister, the, this minister, the one who didn't want to give him the job, remember, and the other guy was telling him off, it looks like he's negative because he didn't even get the hint in the letter. And he wants to now examine that, you know, that he was expelled from the Patriot of Alexander for immorality and disobedience and the fact that he wasn't a Greek. And so obviously they were out to get rid of him. That's what it seems to me anyway. All this pained the Holy One greatly. Not only was he relieve, reliving the malicious rumours and gossip, but now the minister was questioning his character. That, that upset him that the minister even had doubts, or maybe he's immoral and you know, things like that, and disobedient. Furthermore, the fact that he was not considered a Greek citizen burdened him immensely because he was Greek. He began to fear that he might lose his beloved position, denying him the opportunity to serve the church. This un injustice was unbearable for him. He found it difficult to bear. I mean, when someone says one little thing against us, we get like we're going to have a heart attack. So imagine him. In great sorrow, the Holy Nectarius spent that night in front of the icon of Christ. He prayed that the Lord strengthen him to accept this heavy and painful temptation. In other words, this affliction, this sorrow that he was going through. During this prayer, the Holy One decided to write a letter to Patriarch Sophronios. But after this, he had second thoughts. 
He then prayed to the Most Holy Theotokos, asking her to intercede to her son, meaning Christ, that he forgive him for writing this letter, but that he cannot endure this injustice any longer. And he actually did so. He wanted to write a letter to Patriarchs of Foronius to express his pain of this injustice. So much for those who say, he didn't say anything. He just didn't speak at all. Like that, like when I was a lay person, which is my favourite story, when I went to Greece, I was at a monastery and I was talking to the abbot there about, the, about, um, about ecumenism. And he was saying, no, no, we'd say nothing. We'd say nothing. And I said to him, well, Eustin Popovich used to say, he goes, Eustin Popovich. He goes, do you know who Eustin Popovich was? I go, yeah, I just went to his monastery and spoke to the, um, a nun there that personally knew him and she told me all about, uh, well, through Serbian, but there was, I had another person there that was interpreting for me. Um, she, she, used to, she, said, she said to us that Eustin Popovich, when he used to preach, would preach like thunder. He would preach against the wrong things that were happening. He preached against ecumenism. And a lot of times communists used to come to the, to the monastery to bash him, arrest him, etc., etc. Because he was exiled there. He was actually told, you go to that woman's monastery, which is Chelia, you stay there. Like the same thing. He was told to go there. They didn't want him to speak. So he was told, you stay there. And what he did was that he would write his great volumes of work, which have now become the great works, um, especially he wrote some beautiful works, um, powerful works against ecumenism. And uh, when he would preach, there would be only a couple of people in the church, the nuns and maybe some villagers that came. didn't bother him. He still preached. So this poor abbot, this, I don't know, this poor blind man, was actually, he said to me, it was in Greek, it sounds much better in Greek, anyway, he goes, ah, oh, he goes, Popovich, do you know what he used to do? He used to sit in the corner and didn't say a word. And I just had this picture, when he told me, I had this mental picture of this, this, this um, priest in the corner, you know, um, knitting socks or something. <laughs> That's the picture that he wanted. He goes, oh, oh Popovich, then milage katholo, I said in Greek. Katholos I love it. And I said to him, sorry? What are you saying? I said, that's not true. I said, he used to speak. He used to, he used to shout out. He goes, no. Lies, lies. You've heard lies. He goes, that's not true. Distortion, you see? And they try to distort the life of the saint. Nectarius, as if to say, and he took it all. He stood, he stood there. He, you know, I think these people watch too much TV when they were young Superman. They say Superman used to go, they used to go bang, 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 and all the bullets in the cheap little shows that they used to have used to bounce off. And they think that the saints just didn't feel anything, didn't have any problem, they just take everything. That's not true, as we'll see. So he had the thought, I'm going to write to the patriarch. Then he had the thought, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I should just take it. And then he prayed to the mother of God and he asked for forgiveness for what he felt that maybe he should try to endure it or whatever, but he couldn't take it anymore and he asked for forgiveness and he proceeded to write to the patriarch, your holiness. 
This is in 1894. So he had been away from, he had been expelled four years earlier. Have I been so disrespectful towards you that after four years since my unjust departure from Egypt, you were compelled to give the staff members of the Patriarchate slanderous information against me to give to the Greek government? During the past four years, I have also acted deaf and dumb to the many accusations made against me by the Patriarchate. When did your holiness realise that I had disobedient tendencies, as, as they wrote in the letter? What did I do that showed this? Which were the signs that also characterised me as being disrespectful, rebellious and, evil, and, and an evil servant who was plotting against your ecclesiastical authority? Which ecclesiastical court tried me and condemned me and which one decided that I was immoral? How then could the patriarchal trustees blatantly inform the civil representative of the Greek government, in other words, the, the, the ambassador, who was seeking information in an, in, a, in an official capacity that I was removed from my position because I was rebellious, unethical and immoral. Where are the transcripts proving this? Where are my accusers? Where are the witnesses? Where is the evidence of my crime? On what grounds was this official accusation against me made an accusation which condemns me to a moral death. Moral death means that people now look at him as being like a dirty person, etc. What great wrong did I do against you, Your Holiness, or for that matter, against any of the patriarchal trustees? Why is there so much anger towards me and why am I being pursued, seeking my total destruction, even though I am so far away? I mean, another country, in other words. Please tell me, how have I troubled you in any way? What was the great sin that I committed against you? What is the, e what is the evil desire and scheming that, I, that you think I had? Like, where did you think I was planning something against you? With God as my witness, I tell you that I have never, ever plotted anything whatsoever against you. I have only sought good throughout my life and did, not, and did so with great love and many works. I truly believe that your holiness should remember having experienced and seen the glorious examples of my humble and good intentions. Besides, what is, this, what is all this for? Your wrath has been satisfied. In other words, he's saying to the, to the patriarch, your wrath, your anger against me has been satisfied. The work has been completed against me and the evil one has been punished. Who's the evil one? Who is he referring to as the evil one has been punished? Himself. He's actually saying, and the evil one, which is what you think I am, has been punished. What therefore is the purpose of my outdated protest? The purpose is to bring it to the knowledge of your holiness that your every wrath against me, your every anger against me is unjust May God be my witness and judge. I remain with deep reverence and pray the best for you. Right? Now, that does not sound like a person who was, who was um, just sitting back and taking things like they're writing the lies. He, that, was a, that was a letter that poured out pain. Now, just quickly. A number of monks went to Cyprus to meet a very holy uh, elder there from the monastery of Stavrovuni, the abbot Athanasios. And these monks, Serbian monks, uh, sat around one evening to talk to the abbot and ask some questions. One of the monks asked the question, uh, Elder, 
when I have something against one of my brothers in the monastery, should I keep it, should I keep it in myself and just endure, or should I say something? Of course, we, what, what do we hear today? We hear a lot of people say, you take it like the saints, and the saints, and the saints do this. But that's not what it says, because Christ even says, when you have something against you, go and speak one-on-one. If the person doesn't listen, then go with a couple of witnesses and go and speak. If this person still doesn't listen, then go to the church. So he, let's see what he says, because they're expecting him to say, you keep it in yourself. He says, no, you don't keep it in yourself. Because you go to the person with humility and open up and say your complaint. Now that's um, important because the saint himself, I read somewhere in one of the lives, that he said, I have to express myself. Later on, we're going to see now a story about that very thing. But anyway, after he finished writing the letter, he again had doubts as to whether to send it. Finally, he decided to post it. Now, this is a nice, beautiful story. Attending the school was a student whose name was Nicholas, who was about 18 years old. He was a hard-working and bright student who was a boarder at the school. By nature, he was very shy, serious and a loner, even though he was quite tall and physically strong. However, he had an excellent voice, which made him one of the best chanters at the school. One evening, the Holy Nectari saw Nicholas under a tree shaking and crying. He gently asked him, what is troubling you, Nicholas? The boy blushed and lowered his head, as was characteristic, because he was a very shy boy. However, he remained silent. He didn't tell the saint what was wrong. The Holy One said, it is your right to keep what is grieving you to yourself, my child, but you should know that when a person keeps things to himself, it harms both the body and the soul. Now, of course, he should know that from his own experience. When we keep things inside of us, see what he says here? It comes both the body and the soul. Today, people are very repressed. So, this is very important. When a person keeps things inside of him, it harms both the body and the soul. A lot of children today have been brought up by parents who never really... Well, firstly, they weren't there. Too busy working or other things. Some of them have to understand, but in general... Children have, weren't given the opportunity to open up. And because of that, they, a, they became repressed. And that creates a lot of physical problems and a lot of mental disorders. Like when you send children to these, what do you call those things, preschool things, little children, with a number of children there, one teacher with seven, eight kids or something, Someone hits the child, the child cries, or the child wants the mother. There's no mother. So what happens? The child needs, it has needs. It wants consolation, it wants the child's, the mother's love, etc. But it's not getting it. So what happens is that her or his needs are not being met. And slowly, slowly, the child just learns just to just keep it all in. And that's the disease of today. So where these beatniks say to you, these stupid people say to you, oh, no, no, the children grow up just as healthy. They can go to the schools. No, I'm telling you, that's not correct. Unheard. This is just the, 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 the mother is the most important person for a child up to around the age of seven. 
and hence even five years old and four and a half and six is too young to send children to school. It just creates problems. A lot of people that, when I used to do confessions before, even now when I deal with people, it's always the same problems. It's the same problems of when they really start to open up, they just go back to their days at school when they went young and they said that they never knew what was going on and they were um, very upset and scared and anxious and that's when bedwettings and all these things occur. It's not good. Child needs that to you. You have to be the spiritual father, mother to the child. You, in other words, the mother has to be like a priest and teach the child to open up. Not to have all these disturbed, closed children that are existing today. And the TV also teaches children to close and go within themselves. Personally, for me, with, with the spiritual life, with, I think I've been helped um, because I went to school and I, had all, I got my own problems and issues. But as time went on, I discovered that I'm not a per- I don't like to keep things in me. So when I have an issue with someone, I have to say it. I can't because when I've noticed, even if it's an issue with, with even with the bishop, for example, that that um, if I feel that there's something not right or something, I will go to him and I'll express my feelings and let him then explain. A lot of times, uh, my thoughts were wrong in the first place. So sometimes we have paranoia or suspicions or something. But when we go and open up, it gives the person a chance to say, "Oh, I didn't even mean that." Oh, so I suffered for three weeks for nothing. And then we, we, you know, and we can go up and the person says, no, I, I, I meant this, or yes, and clarify why, and you know, all these things. And that's what is, not, is, is missing in today in the families as well. There's just not this, this openness. And it makes me sick. And it makes people, and it makes them sick as well who, who do it. Not, it's not good. And the saint here says it, don't keep it in you. The result of this is depression, he said. When you keep things in you, look at this. You, are, you, are you a doctor? Are you? No, you? There's a few here. There, there's the answer. There's a lot. It says the, the, the result of people that keep things inside of, of, um, of, of themselves is depression and hatred towards others. That's excellent because I have found a lot of times that depressed people have hatred towards others. They've got this, what I call in Greek, vilitirio, which in English means poison inside them. Poison. They become they like a poisonous personality. And they just have what, like a repulsion and a loathing towards other people. Um, anyway, you shouldn't feel unhappy because as a human, you are, a, you are the crown of creation, a Christian with all of God's gifts. Don't forget that Christ loves you and has a plan for you. Then Nicholas went up to the Holy One and whispered in his ear, God's plan for me is to be eliminated. In other words, to die. The Holy One answered, why? How do you know this? Who told you this? He then handed the Holy Nectarius a letter regarding some serious problem with his family. His father had become insane because of alcoholism and his stepmother forced his sisters to work as servants. I understand how that works, but anyway, she gave the, the girls away somewhere to work as servants. After reading the letter, the Holy One was lost for words. He felt sorrow and pain for him. So he read the letter. So he had, two, he had this dilemma that this boy had in his head that he's going to die, not he's going to kill himself, he's just going to die. 
and that um, and that he had this 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 problem here, and he didn't know what to say. After reading the letter, the Holy One was lost for words. He felt sorrow and pain for him. How many times does that happen when we're told something as a priest, we're told something, and sometimes we just don't know what to say. And let's see what the saint did. He didn't know what to say. He felt sorrow and pain for him. He immediately led Nicholas to the school chapel. He then did a paraclysis in, the for, in front of the icon of the Holy Theotokos. During this, both the saint and the boy were crying. See, no words, didn't understand. The saint didn't take him to the local psychologist, didn't take him to the hospital. The first thing he did was he did a paraclysis, a maleban. He, the saint put on his petrahili there, put it on and prayed. One week after this event, Nicholas became very sick with a fever. The school doctor tried to help the boy but was unsuccessful. After a week, Nicholas illness, Nicholas's illness became worse. He had no energy, his eyes were sunken and he became very pale. Other doctors were called in and they could not find what was wrong with him. The doctors and the school committee, the trustees and others, decided to send him to a sanatorium, to a, like a sanitarium, a health resort, somewhere where he can rest. However, the Holy Nectaris pleaded with them to allow the boy to be admitted to the hospital across the road from the school. He wanted the boy to be close so that he could take care of him. See, spiritual, physical. Saint didn't, didn't say don't go to hospital. He said that I want to be close to him. When the Holy Nectaris first visited Nicholas in hospital, the boy said, see your eminence, it is God's will that I die. He answered, I don't think so. See, in his head, as people who deal with people with psychological problems, it, the thought gets stuck. It's stuck. And whatever you do, you can't do it. That's why they try and give medications to stop thoughts. But when you, when, when you give a person medication to stop thoughts, it doesn't just stop the bad thoughts, it stops all thoughts. That's why a lot of times the people say they feel that they are soulless, they've got no soul. Because how does the, how does the chemical know to find which thought is wrong. So the chemical flows through the brain and says, okay, this is a bad thought. That goes. This is a good thought. I'll leave it alone. That's silly. And it just makes the person, I think it makes the person dull for a while so that at least someone can help them, as Elder Paisio said, to help them uh, slowly, slowly come out of their problem. Help them, you know, it might... But sometimes medication can also make them worse. It's just very difficult. That's why I always say, do everything with prayer, parallel. If you don't, then there's more chance of a catastrophe. Seeing the hopelessness of the situation, the Holy One prayed all night to the Holy Theotokos. He asked her to intercede to Christ for the healing of Nicholas. He promised the Holy Virgin that if the boy were to become well, he, in thanksgiving, would compose poetic hymns to her. It was obvious to those around him that he had become very affected by the whole situation with Nicholas to the point that he was on the verge of collapsing the saint. He had become physically and emotionally exhausted. That's how much he cared for him. Like a loving father, he would continually worry about him. He would often pray for the boy and at every opportunity visit him. After some days, the Holy, uh, the Holy One asked all the students and staff of the school to pray with him during an all-night vigil. So he said to the staff and to the other students, let's all go to the chapel 
and will do an all-night vigil and will pray all night for him. See, the doctors could do nothing. The boy was basically dying. The school chapel was overflown with people. Such was their love for, for the sick Nicholas. That night, oh, by the way, they also said that at that time he was so affected, the saint was so affected with this worry about the boy that he, um, he couldn't even teach properly. He couldn't, do his, he couldn't teach the students the subjects. That night during the Holy One's sleep, the Holy Therotokos appeared to him and said, don't worry, my child, meaning St. Nectarius, the Lord will heal the boy. The next day during lunch in the school's dining room, the Holy Nectarius joyously announced to all the students, my children, the Therotokos has heard your prayers. She has been moved so much by the love which you have shown for your fellow student and that she has heard your prayer and prayed to the Lord, our brother Nicholas will become well again. Some of the students were confused by this, while others did not believe the Holy One's words at all. The reason for this was that the doctors had said that Nicholas was unconscious and that he would die in a few days. To the surprise of everyone, that evening Nicholas opened his eyes, smiled and spoke, and even ate some food. From that time on, he began to recover. Three years later, the Holy Noctarius ordained Nicholas a deacon. And not long after that, he was ordained a priest monk. And I think he became a very, very energetic priest monk of the Greek church. So that's a good example of where you do the spiritual and the physical. Around March of 1896, six years after he had arrived from Egypt, as he always did, he continued to perform works of mercy, arms, and in other words, almsgiving. His charities and fundraising activities seemed never-ending. There was a fire somewhere in the, near the Black Sea, I think um, some area there. The Holy Nectarius did not hesitate to gather funds from wherever he could, having in mind the women, children and elderly who were homeless and cold. On another occasion, he was informed that the people of the village he taught, for, for, um, he taught at for seven years on Hios were suffering from high unemployment, extreme poverty, their crops failed and things like that. Remember he was a teacher for seven years in Hios and a village and that village was suffering. He again personally contacted those who were well off to ask for donations. One of those whom he especially asked was a famous Greek banker. As soon as he found out, he ran to the offices of the bank to find the man and he couldn't find him Then he found him finally and said to him, please, can you, um, um, can you please help these people that are suffering? And the banker says, I will fix it up. And he sent money. How often, so he would often say to wealthy donors, quote, I promise you that your generosity will be especially pleasing to the Lord. And another quote, from depths of my heart, I thank you for your generosity. I will pray that you will have a good defence at the dread judgment seat of Christ. So that's how he, how he spoke to people who would give money to the poor, as we notice the way he spoke to the landlady that gave him some food when he was hungry and he said similar things. If any student was suffering with sickness or tuition problems, he was a ready helper. Many charitable organisations, knowing his ability to collect donations, would also ask him for help for their own causes. Apart from this, Apart from his many other duties, the saint of God also corresponded with many who were seeking his help and guidance, such as clergy from all over Greece, monastics, 
even the holy elder, elder Daniel of Katunakia there that said that he used to write to him, lay people and even heterodox, people of other faiths. Because he was also fluent in French, he was able to correspond in that language. I'm not sure where he learnt that. He must have learnt it. Egypt, was it? Akian, that's right, because they all speak a lot of languages there. Mm. That's right, Egypt, um, they, they know about five or six, don't they, languages over there? Um, during the, so, oh, okay, that's that. Then we, during the summer vacation from school in, nine, in 1898, that's eight years now he had gone from um, Egypt and four years he'd been at the school. He, the Holy Nectarius, together with some friends from Chios, visited the Holy Mountain, the Holy Mount Athos, for three months. News of the Holy One's arrival spread throughout all of Mount Athos. The monk's opinion about his character before and after he arrived were divided. Some regarded him as a holy bishop, while others regarded him as a bishop who had fallen away. They labelled him as weak, inexperienced, a Pharisee and two-faced. That's what some of them were saying about him. Apart from this, the slanderers from his enemies, the slanders from his enemies in Alexandria were also circulating around the Holy Mountain that he was immoral and disobedient. So some of the monks believed these slanders. Many monks from all over the mountain came to visit him at various monasteries and skeets at which he was staying. They found him wearing his humble priest's hat or a monk's cap and an old raso, like old, the thing. He did not look like other bishops who are usually, you know, prim and proper and... They make sure that you know what they are. He spent his time studying in the libraries of Athos, praying and leading an ascetical life. Actually, St. John, Archbishop of Shanghai, San Francisco, the great saint whose relics are incorrupt in San Francisco, uh, he, um, people used to put him down and say, look at the way he dressed, because he used to dress a bit sloppily. He was, um, wasn't interested in these externals and, and things like that. So we can see that the more a person's gone off, the more he looks at glory, the more he looks at looking proper and all these type of things. And that's why you know that when women dress up and make up and guys, when they do these all these things, it's a sign of spiritual corruption. And the more a person doesn't worry about the externals and worries about the internal, that means the person's progressing better. But today it's the hair and the... And the um, the face and the all these surgeries and surgeries like some, especially women, some of them have done twenty operations. They've been put under anesthesia. Is anesthesia you say anesthesia? Postulates the anesthesia. You know, twenty times. I mean, these things just once can knock you out, but twenty times they're not even scared that they might not wake up. No, no, because the jawbone is this. Like I saw a special. Sorry, it was this part here. One woman. I think she was around 55 or something, and she said that she had two pieces of the, the meat or whatever you call these things. He was two, like, you know, when you get old. So she had to go to a plastic surgeon to get it pulled back so she doesn't have that, that hanging piece there around her voice box. So she took the chance of going under that and maybe not coming out of it. As we know, that, that happens a lot of times. Especially as we know, some of the anesthesia, uh, some of those people that do the anesthesia, uh, sometimes they're not very. Um, uh, sometimes um, they go a bit intoxicated or under the influence, and so you know you're putting your hands into people. Sometimes it's necessary to have operations, but why would you have an operation? 
because you've got a little spot on your face and you've got to get it, and you've got to get it removed. And, that, and some of them take these chemicals, this Botox, and as you know, that stiffens the muscles, so their face becomes like that. So, they, so you know, they're 60 and they look, and their faces are all like smooth. But what happens is those chemicals, what it does is that it makes their facial muscles kind of stiff. So when you speak to them, you think, why are they angry at me? Or why aren't they, why aren't they laughing at my joke? And you just, they're there going... Like that. So the reason being is because they've got no face. They can't smile. They can't even do it. There was one galar on the television I saw once where he actually... Um, he looked like he had this smooth face, and then um, they they said to him, um, "Can you can you actually smile?" He goes, "Yeah." <laughs> but at least he's got a smooth face. <laughs> oh, poor, poor Galah. So we go on. Um, he spent his time studying in the libraries of Athos, praying and leading an ascetical life. The monks noticed his simplicity, humility, kindness, meekness, goodness and body. They went as far as to say that they actually felt like they were face to face with a hierarch of old, such as Basil the Great and Gregor the Theologian. Also, many of those who spoke ill about him changed their minds. So, being man Athos, you would think that their spirituality would be more in tune with reality, obviously, and therefore they picked up that he was truly a holy person and that a lot of what was said was lies. Because a person can go to Manathos and act like all humble externally. We see a lot of them, like these external things. They go up and they act like that and, and, they, and, and you can say, oh, look, they're, 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 um, they're humble. But that's not true humility. Humility comes from within, not external. In 1899, Patriarch Sophronios died and a new patriarch of Alexandria needed to be elected. Even though Metropolitan left Egypt approximately 10 years ago, the faithful in Egypt continued to remember him as a saintly man. The Holy Nectarius was urged by many Greeks, both in Greece and Egypt, to return to Egypt and declare himself as a candidate for the patriarchal throne. The humble-minded Nectarius, however, wished to distance himself from this election because his desire was to spend the remainder of his life, like to retire as a monk, in a monastery. The Bishop of Patras and many friends of the Holy One and pupils of the school urged him not to be so humble and modest. They wanted him to be chosen as the next Patriarch of Alexandria. In addition, more and more letters were arriving from Egypt begging him to return. Greeks were sending him letters and saying, please come back. The Holy Nectarius prayed to the Theotokos, expressing to her all his fears and his desires to serve the people of Greece. He kind of said, I don't really want to go back, maybe I should stay here, there's all this thing. Anyway, then they wrote um, in a newspaper, in an ecclesiastical newspaper, they wrote a letter, which I'm running out of time, but just says in the letter that um, he's the best person to become patriarch. I'll just read it quickly. His eminence, the Metropolitan of Pentopolis, is one of the strongest candidates for the throne of Alexandria because he is among the most distinguished, well-educated, fervent and faultless hierarchs of the Eastern Orthodox Church he is a very productive writer and a tireless worker of the spirit, having as his food and pleasure the service of the word of God and truth. He is extremely free of greed, a fiery lover of goodness, calm but strong, meek yet firm, pure in life. He is modest, well-mannered, above pettiness and intrigues, above passion and envy. He is truly a, 
uh, a superior episcopal personality. He is among the most selected, select ones. If someone more suitable than he should be preferred for the patriarchal throne of Alexandria, no one would rejoice more than he. Yet if he were to be chosen, modest as he is, he would have only one ambition, how to prove himself worthy of his mission in all humility. That was in the newspaper Analipsis, which is September the 9th, 1899. This letter and other letters that he was receiving, sorry, this newspaper, he decided to go to Egypt. It is true that the Holy One had many devoted supporters in Egypt. After arriving in Egypt, he quickly realised that the clergy of Alexandria supported one of the other candidates, whose name was Photios. Photios also had the support of Patriot Damianos of Jerusalem and Queen Olga of Greece. She was a Russian, but she was uh, married. You know, she was the Queen of Greece. Seeing this and not wishing to create problems and divisions, the Holy Notarius returned to his position as director of the Rosario School in Athens. He later said, quote, I listened to the requests of our fellow countrymen and I went to Egypt not to cause problems and divisions but to bring peace and love. It was God's will for him to say in Athens, obviously, so that he could teach the Orthodox faith and Orthodox life to many. So it wasn't God's will for him to be chosen patriarch. He felt anyway, and he left. It was now 1902, 13 years since the Holy Nectaris was expelled from Egypt and arrived in Greece. Even though he had worked as director of the Rosario School for nine years and had achieved so much success in the position, the bishops of the Holy Synod of Greece still referred to St. Nectarius as a visiting hierarch, refusing to give him a diocese in Greece. Apart from this, an increase, an increase in number of clergymen were questioned the Holy Ones running of the Rosario School. So again, the same story um, that he was um, is only a visiting hierarch, not a Greek citizen, that he was not running the school properly. One day, St. Nectarius was at the office of the Holy Synod when he was approached by the new Archbishop of Athens, Theoklitos. The Archbishop said to him, quote, You must take care of all pending matters regarding your situation. I see that you are sitting back and doing nothing about this. Even if the Synod decided to give you a diocese, it should be hindered by that patriarchal matter, end quote. I think that sounds like a bit rude to me, saying to me, you're going to fix your problem up. You're not doing anything. But of course he did. He wrote to Patriarch Sophronius. He went to, um, he went to, um, to be elected as a Patriarch, which they didn't, the, the clergy didn't want him, so he left. But this Archbishop was saying that, you know, that problem in Alexandria is haunting you. That matter has not been fixed up. This ongoing matter regarding his citizenship deeply hurt the saint of God. Whenever the synod would send him correspondence, they would always refer to him as visiting hierarch. Because of this, the Holy One was forced to write to the new patriarch of Alexandria, Photios. Even though Photios was chosen as patriarch of Alexandria instead of him, the Holy One held no ill feelings towards him. He sincerely respected him and prayed for him. He believed that the new patriarch would clear up this matter and perhaps even bring him back to Egypt. Like a bit of a thought. So, now he's going to write a letter to the new patriarch of Alexandria, dated 1902 there. And <clears throat> we are coming now towards the end. So it says here, he writes and he says, I enclosed three letters issued by Patriarch Sophronios for your holiness. The first one is dated May the 3rd, 1890, in Cairo. And I'm telling you now that that one was the one where they said to him, you're no longer bishop of that area, you know, you, you know, you know from the from talk one. 
this, and then the 2nd July the 11th, 1890, told him to leave Egypt, and the 3rd also July the 11th, 1890, official release. These letters dismissed me of my position, relieved me of my duties, and even released me from being a clergyman and sent me away from Egypt without explanation or apology, as you will clearly see. This is writing this to the Patriarch. The decision, Your Holiness, was contrary to the canons and decrees of the Church. So he's reminding the Patriarch that's not canonical what they did. Furthermore, it was unjust and unfair that through one man's decision, a metropolitan can be sent away without explanation. A metropolitan who was properly recorded in the official register and who was ordained by the same Patriarchate that banished him and who worked tirelessly for the Patriarchate. With all due respect, I ask, is this just? He's saying... How can one man, meaning the patriarch, without a synod, without an ecclesiastical court, just send him away? It's just not done. And he says, with all due respect, Your Holiness, I ask, is this just, what, what, what was done? Please note, Your Holiness, that the blessed departed wrote the following the July 11th, 1890. And he's quoting, he's quoting um, Sophronius' letter where he said he also... He, he's also notified that all his accounts have been duly paid and that he has received all his salaries until the time it was necessary and there was nothing more to pay or to be paid by our patriarchal throne because they wrote in there that he has given, he's been given all his pay. However, now the saints saying to, to Fotios, that is unfortunately not the case. The blessed departed patriarch decided that my right to receive a salary ended at the time I was ordained a bishop. I was denied the payment of 16 months of wages... Someone would find this very interesting to say that why would the saint that didn't even care about money, why does he write in this? Because it really hurt him that they lied. Because they said that you've been paid all your money, but really he hadn't been paid. And he's actually even writing that, that, that in there. It was only because of my absolute reverence towards this, his holy person and because I wished to have a peaceful spirit that I did not object to this double injustice. One injustice, that he was thrown out. Second injustice, that he wasn't given his pay. Instead, I submitted to his blessed will and left Egypt, believing that justice would be served by the Lord whenever he felt it was time. I believe that with this letter, that time is nearing, he's saying to the patriarch. I therefore entreat your holiness to deliver me that justice and acknowledge me as a bishop of your patriarchal throne. If your holiness will be so gracious and kind as to have justice served and make the necessary arrangements for my position, I would like to then express my gratitude to you in advance. I remain in full reverence, respectfully, Nectarius. When the Holy Nectarius signed the letter, he felt as if his soul had been relieved of this anguish he had been carrying around with him for so many years. See, again, he felt this pain and he had to express, not like today or I call today a lot of people. What's happening today? It's it's um, what's called emotional constipation, where people keep within themselves their emotions. Don't let it out. Like you all know what constipation is. Well, that's emotional constipation. A person cannot express their emotions. This is not a good sign, and that I tell you, that comes a lot from the way people have been brought up. Six months had passed with no reply. So the saint sent a registered letter to the patriarch, Fortios, in reference to his previous letter, but again he received no reply. The fact he didn't receive responses to his two letters troubled the only one. So after he didn't receive a reply for the first one, six months later he sent a registered letter and said to him, you know, I sent you a letter, you haven't replied. 
Another five months or so had passed and the Holy One still had received no response to his second letter. He was told that Patriarch Fortios had received the two letters and filed them away indefinitely. In other words, he did not intend to deal with the Holy One's matter and this hurt him deeply as well. So in other words, the Patriarch just put him away and says, I'm not going to answer him, I'm not going to deal with him, he's nothing to us. That was the treatment that he got. And the last thing was, it was now 1903, a year after he wrote to Patriarch Fortios. He wanted so much to clear his name and he decided to write to the Patriarch of Constantinople, Joachim III. So now he's writing to the Patriarch of Constantinople and asking him, please help. To His Holiness, the Archbishop of Constantinople, New Rome and Ecumenical Patriarch, Lord Joachim III. Your Holiness, this is the last letter. I am most respectfully enclosing herein to Your Holiness a copy of a letter that I sent to Patriarch Fortius of Alexandria as well as the copies of three letters Patriarch Sophronios had given me wherein announcing that my position at the Alexandrian Patriarchate was relieved. He relieved me of the duties which he himself had given me. He dismissed me from being a simple priest. Even as a priest, he didn't even want him there. And sent me away without a trial or an explanation, as you can clearly see from the text of the attached letters. The purpose of the letter, which I sent to His Holiness Patriarch Fortius of Alexandria, was to request that he clear up this injustice that had been committed against me, that justice be served. See, the saint continually asking for justice to be served. I don't understand these lives which actually say he didn't, didn't do anything about it. And I really like this life because... It shows that um, the human side of the saint, the pain that he went through and the lengths that he took to clear his name, not for himself personally as such, because I noticed he hasn't mentioned anything about the moral accusations, but what bothered him that he was not recognised as a bishop is to do with him in that position as bishop. Even though His Holiness received my letter over 11 months ago, along with the notices of discharge and my letter of dismissal, he apparently, I love this part, he apparently doesn't consider me worthy enough to reply to. So he's saying that Fortius doesn't consider him worthy enough even for a reply. I'm at a loss with this situation. I'm in need of counsel. That is why I deem it necessary that I go to your worship for holiness, beseeching your wise counsel. The main reason that I made the request to the Patriarch of Alexandria Fortios was to clear my position as a hierarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church and that this be announced to all ecclesiastical authorities. This needs to be done because the way it is at this time, I am discharged and therefore do not belong to any of the autocephalous churches. It doesn't belong, he's saying, to no church. Not the Church of Russia, to the Moscow Patriot, not to Bulgaria, not to Serbia, not to Greece, not to Constantinople, not to Antioch. He belongs to no church at all. This needs to be done because the way it is at this time, I'm discharged and therefore I do not belong to any of the autocephalous churches, even though I am been in Greece for 14 years serving the country, I am officially considered by the Holy Synod of Greece as simply 
a visiting clergyman, and on all the communications it uses, I'm given the title, quote, visiting hierarch. The fact that a hierarch has been fully discharged and does not belong to any church has been unknown up to now in the history of the church, and I feel that even your holiness, as well as other experts of ecclesiastical canons and decrees, cannot accept this as being proper, nor can approve of this. See, because it's against the canons. So he, as a bishop, he has the right to ask for it to be fixed. I feel that His Holiness Patriarch Fortius owes me an answer to my request. He needs to inform me of my status regarding the letters and the release document which were addressed to me by the Blessed Patriarch Sophronios, may his memory be eternal, so that I can arrange my affairs and life accordingly. I am sure that Your Holiness will, uh, will grace me by advising me as to what should be done regarding reinstating me to my proper position as a hierarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church. In other words, the Orthodox Church. I remain with utmost respect, kissing your most holy right hand fervently and ask most respectfully your blessings and prayers, the Metropolitan of Pentapolis, Nectarius. When Patriarch Joachim received the letter, he was at a loss of what to do. He could see that the Holy Nectarius was correct, that he had been treated unjustly. But in order to solve the problem, he would have to challenge, in other words, he would have to go against Patriarch Fortios and his supporters, which included Queen Olga, because Queen Olga, as we heard from the previous talk, she liked Fortios and she was the one that was supporting him to become Patriarch. This would create friction between the Patriarch of, Const the Patriarchate of Constantinople and the Patriarchate of Alexandria and the Queen of Greece. And even though he was the senior Patriarch, first among equals, he lacked the courage to correct this great injustice. Perhaps the fact that he was under Turkish rule, because remember that Joachim III, the Patriarch of Constantinople, was still under, under the Turks. So therefore he was in a difficult situation both politically and ecclesiastically. From around 1900s the Turks were already starting to kill many Armenians and Greeks. There was, like, it was a very, very difficult time. By the way, Queen Olga was Prince Philip's paternal grandmother. So Prince Philip of England, Queen Olga was uh, so Prince Philip's father's mother and Tsar Nicholas's father's first cousin. So Tsar Nicholas, the last Tsar, his father was first cousin with Queen Olga. In other words, that makes Tsar Nicholas, uh, that's her, his auntie by cousin. Um, so... That's what happens sometimes. There's these political situations. You've got to sometimes compromise. That's, he felt that he couldn't help the saint at that time. A situation, that's what he felt. However, he sent his patriarchal greetings to St Nectarius through a trustworthy representative with the suggestion that he remain in his position at Rosarius and be patient a little longer. When he received this response, the saint felt that he had done all he possibly could to clear his name all he could do now was to wait for the Lord to show him his will. That's it. He said, "He said, I've, I've done my, um, I've done what I could. Do. I've done what I, what, what I can. I have even written a letter to the Patriarch of Constantinople, the senior Patriarch, among one can say, and even he really can't help me. And the advice he gave was just um, stay where you are. But notice he didn't write a letter to him." because it would be put in writing, and then later on 
He didn't want that letter to be given to the queen or to others and say, look, he's supporting the saint. So he sent someone and verbally said to the saint that the patriarch sends his blessings and says, just stay at the school for the time being. Conclusion. That's it. We're finished. The saint was now 57 years old. He had become physically and mentally tired from the persecutions and his pastoral work as director of the school, his teaching at the school, preaching at the school and around Athens and Piraeus, confessing, writing correspondence. He had been expelled from Egypt 14 years before this time. He had spent one year in Athens seeking a position as a bishop and later as a preacher. He spent two and a half years in Evia and as a, pre- and as a preacher and le- as a preacher, sorry, Nevia, and less than six months on the mainland Greece as a preacher, another ten years as Dean of Rosarius. After so many years, the injustice which had been done to him had not been resolved. He remained a bishop without a diocese. So that is the end of the talk. I've lost my voice, actually. Next month is part three of this great saint, he spent 15 years altogether in the school, and then he's going to retire to the um, to the monastery where he with some with some nuns that that, and there he goes through again the most horrendous persecutions. So we're going to speak about that, and God willing, we're going to then go through his sufferings with his sickness because he had prostatitis, and then we're going to go through his uh, death with blessed repose. And I think that's probably all we'll get through. And then the one after that, another one, we might have on his relics, the miraculous about his relics and all those things, his teachings, writings and miracles and um, his glorification as a saint of God. So, you know, he wanted to be justified. Maybe in the next talk he might, we'll see. Or maybe he will never be justified in this life, but he was after he left. We'll see which, which one it'll be. Stand up, please. Through the prayers of the Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, God of mercy, and save us. Amen. Oh, by the way, this icon. I forgot to say that um, the icon here where St. Nicholas is writing on this piece of paper in front of the icon. I don't know why I missed it. I must have looked. I don't know. Anyway, after the boy got better, I forgot to mention that he wrote... He did write po- po- poetic hymns to the Mother of God, and one of them is the um, Agni Parthena, I thought, uh, uh, which is what we sang today at the end of the talk. That was one of them because he because he he felt that the Mother of God helped him in in all the time throughout his life. He was very close. Any saint that you read that is not close to the Mother of God is not a, is not an Orthodox saint. Any Christian who is not close to the Mother of God cannot be saved. Okay, thank you.